Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Copla Connections. As ever, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilouis. If you're new to this podcast, what we do over here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time. And as we kick off with episode 31... I was joined by the amazing Ian Harries from the podcast Nobody Asked For to talk about the Wes Anderson directed and Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman storied by Isle of Dogs. It's a fantastic episode. Me and Ian, uh, yeah, we talk about all things that we love. We talk about stop motion. We talk about dogs and we talk about some of the things that people found problematic with this film and uh don't let that turn you off because it's not like a kind of thing we're going oh this film's bad we, we we i think we kind of figure out some answers we kind of figure out what's good about it what's bad about it what what, what it's what it's trying to say how it works how it doesn't work and all that kind of good stuff but before we get into today's chat i just wanted to give a shout out to the patreons so that is max pentecost marcy jonathan foster the pod daddy himself thank you jonathan and the lovely russell bailey from the not just for kids podcast thank you guys so much for being a patreon for the show and helping the wheels keep on turning uh, if you would like to become a Patreon, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where there's plenty of little goodies behind that paywall. As is always the case with the film that is discussed in this episode, we spoil it bloody rotten. We talk about all of the the illnesses and coughs and sneezes that these dogs commit. We talk about third act things maybe in the first 20 minutes of this conversation. We dart around the place. We leave no cage unrattled when trying to figure out where spot is so you have been warned there are spoilers ahead so i guess all that's left to do is to head on over to trash island look for your lost dog spots and on the way make friends with a band of strays and ex-house pets as we make some coppola connections
this week we head to an island made of trash because a corrupt politician who hates the inhabitants. But apart from living in the UK, we're here to talk about Wes Anderson's ninth feature film, the stop-motion animated science fiction comedy Isle of Dogs, boasting a staggeringly impressive voice cast that includes Ed Norton, Brian Cranston, Koyu Rankin, Francis McDormand, Bill Murray, and Scarlett Johansson, to name but a few. Released in 2018, Isle of Dogs was written by Wes Anderson, based on a story by Wes Anderson, Kanuchi Nomura, and today's double Coppola connections, Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola. Joining me to find an antidote for snout fever and dog flu, and to determine if this film and the Coppola family should be slung onto a trash heap on Trash Island or saved to sit at the right hand of the mayor is a man well-versed in pub conversations, good bad movies, and Nicolas Cage. One half of the podcast that nobody asked for, Ian Bloody Harry's. Ian, have you heard the rumour that this is a delightful film? Uh, it is. It is a delightful film. And I, I, I just, I love it. It's, uh, yeah, dogs, stop motion. It is designed purely, purely for me. Don't know why I went full radio voice then, but yeah, I just, I, I know we had Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I, I never thought quite how Wes Anderson lined up with I Love, uh, like, uh, or Wes Anderson lined up with stop motion before. It is, I think it is like just a perfect combo. Yes. Love it. Looking forward to it. I think the only way he could kind of outdo himself with stop motion is to do a stop motion Charlie Brown adaptation to kind of marry the worlds of something that is inherently uh, somber and kind of downbeat like a Wes Anderson film is already in the Peanuts franchise and kind of the, I don't know, bring his tweeness to it. They kind of, they kind of feel like something that would be simpatico in a way. I mean, I'd watch that, and obviously, the cast would be insane in it because yeah. I, I I can't think of any other director who can get this amount of like pure A list into yeah. a film. Yeah, and what would be mad about a Peanuts film is Bill Murray's voice would be augmented to sound like a trombone, <laughs> and even still, people would be like, "It's amazing, Bill Murray's there." Do you know what I mean? But you'd hear a distinct kind of downbeat Bill Murray tone to that womp womp that you would, uh, it would be like, oh, yeah, another smasher. It would just work. And <laughs> again, we're partly joking, but I would watch that immediately. Yeah. Like as soon as it became available, I would be there. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, I just, I just like stop, stop motion. Like the Coppola's all good. Good, good, good. Well, yeah. Not only did you say this involves dogs stop motion, uh, I believe you're a big fan of post-apocalyptic movies, and this somewhat fits into Ooh. that category as well. I've recently listened to an episode <laughs> of your podcast where you talk about post-apocalyptic worlds in which uh, you think that you could live in, and you kind of yeah. you have to be reined in by Graham on your kind of love of post-apocalyptic worlds. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know what it is about. Um, kind of the post-apocalyptic genre that I like, but I, I think it's something about seeing something that you recognise and them having a twist on it. Mm -hmm. So, like with uh, obviously, kind of the main um, dystopia aspect of this is all of the it's Trash Island, 
which is just this decaying city, but it it's tweaked slightly to make it, it it's just like a new take on an old thing. Um, and I just, yeah, it, it's, I, I lap that stuff up, whether it's books, video games, films, as soon as there's a post-apocalyptic aspect to it, it's like, right, that, that is on the list. <laughs> well, people might be a bit bemused by me kind of saying like, you talk about post-apocalyptic worlds that you live in. Can you tell us a little bit about what the podcast nobody asked for is? Yeah, so it's the, the, the idea was generally just to record the random conversations me and my co-host Graham would have about films and TV. So each year, uh, each week, we take a random topic that nobody's asked us to talk about. So like post-apocalyptic worlds, we would live our best life in. Uh, we've covered um films that we would add wrestlers to uh and just kind of topic topics like that recently um for uh the birthday of the glorious nicholas cage yes. we had a two-parter of nicholas cage films that would have been better if it was john travolta and john travolta films that would have been better as nicholas cage yeah. and what we do is we each come with a top three list and then we argue about what the final podcast top three would be and it's it's great it's been it's very it's very cathartic i'm getting a lot of stuff out i didn't realize i had in me one thing that surprises me about your podcast with you and graham both being sports fans is that you haven't like kind of gamified the format in the way that like if so if you're kind of depending on how many of your where it ranks so if you're kind of a film that you've suggested or one of the topics you've suggested is at one it gets three points, two points, and one point, and then kind of so, have a um, running league table. So behind closed doors, we have. <laughs> <laughs> there is. So we, we, we haven't gone as granular as like three points for a number one, two points for a number two. Um, it is always, it is if your choice makes the final top three, it's a point. Um, and then we always end up like just arguing over, well, this was kind of ended up, because like sometimes in the conversation it ends up you kind of like hybrid a yes. couple of ideas together and it's like all right well that's that's half a point each so we'll we'll kind of do that and then if our uh we have a monthly good bad movie episode where we put a vote out on instagram and they vote uh which film we need to watch and graham and i both bring two ideas and if your choice gets picked you get a bonus point um and graham's had like four picked in a row now and i'm not particularly happy with that <laughs> yeah i i i want it i want it added into the actual podcast just so there's like a pressure cooker element and uh it gets more unhinged with you guys feeling that <laughs> that the audience are in there going fucking like oh, i want to hear an argument oh yeah well I've, i i think yeah. it's because i've gone through every nicholas cage film and i'm all about going through journeys that could potentially break a man that I want other podcasters to go through a similar kind of uh, soul destroying journey as me. But uh... well, we have we, we we have so we have three uh, point tallies uh, on our like spreadsheet. Amazing. So there is there is my points, Graham's points, and then Graham has another category because in one episode his choice was the thing, mm -hmm. and he then argued that. Well, if the thing, I think it was like your dream pet. And he said that, well, if the thing is a pet, every choice is now actually the thing. 
<laughs> so he's he's now claimed that. Well, that means every, for all we know, every top three we've ever done is actually just the thing. It's like, all right, I can, I I can appreciate that argument. So uh, there is a little running tally of it. Amazing, amazing. Well, um, obviously, yeah, we've established what podcast is that nobody asked for. But I want to know a little bit about your relationship, first of all, to the Wes Anderson. Are you a Wes Anderson fan, Ian? I love Wes Anderson. Um, I was trying to think... Um, I was trying to think which the first film I would have watched of his. Um, because I definitely had to go back to discover more so it wouldn't have been uh bottle rocket or rushmore which we will be talking about a little bit later so i i think i kind of went in at a high point of the royal tenenbaums oh yes and then just kind of bridged out from there which is great because you kind of from that point you really see his cast grow and shrink the other way yeah it's it's and, and, and it's kind of that thing when one of them like pops up again because like if they're missing for a few movies you're like you you might speculate in your head being like oh they they had some beef or something and then you find out like i'm not sure if it's a joke credit for this but uh angelica houston is credited as like mute poodle and it's like mute poodle so obviously she doesn't speak or they like or there's like one of the production staff is listed as like the voice of the owl and the owl, all, all it does is hoot in the film. It's like, uh, have they, are they just, is Wes Anderson trolling us here? Definitely, I think with that uh, Angelica Houston one, he is. But yeah, when she cropped up as the narrator in um, The French Dispatch last year, yeah. I was kind of like, ah, oh, she's back in the fold. Hopefully we'll see her on screen in Asteroid City. Although I haven't yes. seen her on the cast list for that yet. But also, you know, she might be on the cast list and not in the film, so you never know. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah so Royal, Royal Tenenbaums, I think, was the first one, which I still think is one of the... It's closing in on a perfect film mm-hmm. for me, I think. And I think it was as it was... Kind of Wes Anderson had figured out his thing yeah, um, and was just kind of really running with it. Um, and then, like I said, just kind of branched out from there. And I, I will watch anything because there, there's no other films like it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, pe- yeah. Well, funnily enough, somebody pointing out to me uh, a while ago that you can see the seeds of what Wes Anderson does in Francis Ford Coppola's uh, short that he made for a uh, like a portmanteau kind of uh, series of shorts with i think it's with um notorious pedophile and filmmaker woody allen and martin scorsese did like a a kind of triptych of shorts called new york stories and okay yeah yeah francis ford coppola's basically plays out like a, a wes anderson film this kind of story of kind of new york socialites and kind of do you know what i mean like the upper classes and it's I, I love yeah. I love the fact that even he is kind of engrossed. He's kind of in He's kind of like I don't know, developed himself as almost being like a, a Coppola, even though he's not. Do you know what I mean? He kind of he works with the family so much. Kind of references Francis, whether it's the kind of plays that 
he puts on in Rushmore with <laughs> yeah. the kind of massive Apocalypse Now kind of riff at the end. And I think there's a there is a line in that film that is directly lifted from The Godfather when Max Fisher says to Guggenheim, uh, let me slide this time. So I think uh, someone says to like Tom Hagen about like basically, let me get away with this this time. Like I know I'm going to go for my death. And like I, lo- I love that there's that stuff in there. And it, yeah, that Wes Anderson is almost... I don't know like a kind of surrogate surrogate son or cousin to the family yeah definitely i mean like with g- given the rate that i'm discovering new people in this family it wouldn't have surprised me if i looked at your spreadsheet and it turns out he was because again yeah peek behind the curtain of this podcast you sent out a spreadsheet of films i could do and um <laughs> it wouldn't have surprised me to find out that wes anderson was like a far removed cousin or something like that on like a withered popular uh branch somewhere yeah. <laughs> well like funny enough all of his films bar the royal tenenbaums and bottle rocket appear on the list so he might as well be a coach yeah. at this point and it's like i'm tempted to cover the royal tenenbaums another peek behind the curtain tempted to cover the royal tenenbaums just so i can talk about the fact that uh mordecai the uh pigeon was originally supposed to be yeah, an yeah. actual speaking character was going to be replayed by Jason Schwartzman. So just to do like uh, a, a Coppola connections, what ifs, and then it's an excuse to talk about the Royal Tenenbaums in detail. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, so w- when you asked me to kind of come on the podcast, um, the first thing I looked for was Rushmore. <laughs> so it was w- without even opening kind of what you sent through, it was like, right, well we're doing Wes Anderson. It's going to be, uh, um, because Jason Sportsman's here, there's going to be a load of Wes Anderson stuff. Let's see what's there. And Rushmore, um, to be fair, incredible episode. I'm not annoyed. Thank you. Um, but then while, while looking through, like, it, it's kind of like trivia you must have known, but you forgot. Mm-hmm. So I completely forgot who Jason Schwartzman's mum was. Yes. <laughs> like, so she's, um, so I've, I, I have a text message that I sent to a friend, which was just Jason Schwartzman, just in all capital letters, Jason Schwartzman's mum is fucking Adrian in Rocky. <laughs> and it was just like, it's, I just couldn't mm. quite, quite grasp it. Um, and then like, we kind of briefly, briefly talked before we recorded, um, Airheads, wasn't expecting Airheads to, yeah. pop up either like i just keep finding new members of this family and it is uh it it's nice long may it continue yeah long may the coplas pump <laughs> out films and i think john schwartzman is was only on the list because nicholas cage referred to him as his cousin even though he's only in the family by marriage because he is yeah jack schwartzman's son from a previous marriage to talia shire but yeah when yeah. nicholas cage said Oh yeah, I worked with my cousin on The Rock because he's the DOP of that. I was like, he's on the list, and it's like he's on. And then it started going even more bizarre, where it's like, oh, uh, Patricia Arquette, she would have been round for Christmas dinner all that time she was married to Nicolas Cage. She's on the list for that period. Spike Jones, he's on the list for that period. He was married to uh, Sophia Coppola. Spike Jones was another one that I was like, oh crap, wow, that is. They are very. I, d- I do like the Christmas dinner test. 
I yes. think that's what it should be record, uh, referred to as, is if they were going to be there at Christmas dinner and it not be awkward, yeah, they're part of the family. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. If, if they shared a glass of, uh, like, a bottle of uh, Francis's kind of reserve, family reserve wine <laughs> from a carafe, do you know what I mean? If they've, if they've tasted his, his signature bolognese, then they're definitely, they're definitely covered on this podcast. So uh, we've kind of tiptoed towards the uh, Coppola family. So when did you first become aware of the Coppola family as this kind of tendril spider's web of a dynasty that they are in? Yeah, so for me, there's kind of like three parts to that, uh, that answer for me. So... Again, I was trying to think back on what my first film would have been from the family. And because of my age and the time I got into films, I think it would have been Jack. Yeah. So I think I would have been aware of Francis Ford Coppola because of Jack before, like, The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Then, as you mentioned in the introduction, which I am going to write down for like my CV at some point, <laughs> um, I am a massive Nicolas Cage fan. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, to me, can do no wrong. He's incredible. Every year, I will watch a Nicolas Cage film on my birthday. That is, that is a treat to myself, and I think that really kind of sums it up quite well. So I was a big fan of Nicolas Cage, and then I found out, like, oh, he was, um, you know, he's related to... Francis Ford Coppola that's that's weird but it was still just like the two of them I didn't realize there was the dynasty around it mm-hmm. and then it would have been Jason Schwartzman when it was like oh so he's Nicolas Cage's cousin mm-hmm. so there's and then from there it just kind of all exploded out from there and like I said I'm still finding out um people Phil or people that are related to them which I didn't realize but it, 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 yeah, it would have been Jason Schwartzman was kind of the key guy that took it from just a guy and a, you know, just a, As a uh, nephew, Nicolas Cage's nephew. Nicholas, who's Nicolas Cage's nephew? Nick, no, Nicolas Cage is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 As, yeah so it just, just went from that to, oh, it is a, it is a dynasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's loads. There's, there's loads of them. And as somebody who's watched a lot of Nicolas Cage films, have you ever seen the film A Score to Settle? I don't think I have, actually. Ah, uh, well, you will watch that film and then go, this young guy looks like Nicolas Cage in his 20s, <laughs> and then realise there is Bailey Coppola, who is, front, uh, who is uh, Nicolas Cage's nephew, who looks the spitting image of him, and the family just goes on and on. Uh. And you would have seen Deadfall, right? That's that's directed by yes, yeah, 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 by uh, Chris Coppola, uh, Nicholas's brother. And then there is a scene in that film that has Talia Shire in it, and their other brother, Mark Coppola, who kind of plays this guy just at a bar who, for for some reason, goes, "What was all that about?" And it's like he's just like <laughs> kind of given a line where it's like, "We give you a line." you'll get paid a bit more. You'll kind of, you'll, you'll get <laughs> yeah. some residuals on the back end of this film that you make right. a lot of money. Your Wikipedia article, uh, page on the Coppola family tree will be a blue link rather than just uh, <laughs> just your name. Yeah, there won't be some dots. Don't worry, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll solid out that line, baby. Um, so what would have been, the, the, yeah, the, this might be a weird one for Roman, but 
it's a two-part question. What would have been your first film that you would have seen from both of Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola? Um, so Jason Schwartzman definitely, I think, would have been, again, it was one I was trying to think of, because he, he's one of those actors who I feel like he's been in more than he has. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's because everything he's in, you remember that he's in. Um, but I think, I think it would have been Rushmore. Um, or at the very least, that was the first one that I took notice of. Yeah. Um, and with Roman, I'm not, I'm not actually sure. Um, it's uh, so you've never seen a glimpse in the mind of Charles Swan the Third. You're telling me now, Ian? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that the that's the Charlie Sheen yeah. one? Bill Murray film. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't. I've seen a Shia LaBeouf one that came around, out about the same time that had a very similar title. Yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Roman Coble is a funny one because I guess, uh, I don't know, he, he's got an interesting career in that during the 90s, he kind of directed a load of videos that like, or had a hand in like a load of music videos and stuff like that. So yeah. The Peaches video for uh, the Presidents of the United States of America. He directed that. Oh, cool. He directed... Well, he was the camera operator for the Praise You video, the Fat Boy Slim uh, video. So, obviously... I did... So, when I was researching, I saw he'd done Fat Boy Slim stuff. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. He did... Um, what's the one where everything blows up? Like, do you, do you remember that? Was it like... Uh, it's not Funk's Old Brothers. It's like... Uh, yeah, but like one of if there's like a a really yeah. famous Fatboy Slim video where just basically it's like I don't know like a dining room cabinet that just explodes. It's a TV. It's a couch. Like I know what you mean. Yeah. Just, See, he was Roman. Roman was the praise you video guy. Yeah, he did last night. That is for the strokes. Yeah. He's done a load of strokes stuff. Like I he, think I think he did. I think he did every every music video they did from the is it twelve fifty one. Yep, he did that. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Their, their their big album, he did all of the single music videos from it. Yeah, so like, which, um, so probably some... to be fair, probably that. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, like a, a tenuous connection. But he was the second unit director on the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou as well. So like, that's kind of like ah. he's managed to like sneak in. Or he, yeah, he's, he's he's a lot more on the writing credits. So Moonrise Kingdom, he co-wrote with Wes yeah. Anderson. Uh, he co-wrote. The Darjeeling Limited. That when you kind of look at it through that lens, you go, "Oh yeah, of course." It's a film about privileged kids kind of coming to terms with the fact that of living up to their dad. It's like Roman Copeland <laughs> knows that in spades. Yeah, that is that makes a lot of sense. Now you've uh, now you've said it. That's a that is a very under because a lot of people seem to think it's like the black sheep of the Wes Anderson mm-hmm. like pantheon. Like I don't think it gets the credit it deserves, and I think that is just because it's a it's a very good film from a guy who generally makes like masterpieces. I I, I think it's the fact as well that his career was building up, building up, and building up, and then yeah, the life quite with Steve Sizu didn't do as well like as they expected it to for the kind of massive budget he had it kind of developed cult status afterwards when everybody yeah. started wearing red beanies and kind of uh like coveting those adidas trainers but uh 
singing, singing Bowie in uh, Portuguese. Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 <laughs> yeah. it, it, it meant that he had to do something on a like a smaller scale and a, a smaller budget. So I guess for people at the time, it's like, oh, we've become accustomed to the way you make films. And this isn't that. This is something yeah. far smaller and kind of uh, a bit more personal. I would argue it's probably like the most human of his films and kind of it's after that he departures is that is yeah it's kind of he takes that that train keeps on going and then the next stop is wes landerson as i like to call it when it kind of comes <laughs> this theme park attraction world of kind of shoebox like kind of dioramas yeah. just that the colors get brighter and brighter and more pastel as yes. the train is uh just chugging along yeah it's like going through that tunnel in willy wonka's factory you know, like, <laughs> It just keeps on going with no way of it slowing. Yeah, now, Wes like... Anderson could make a very good Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. Yes, 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 yes. Because yeah, yeah. also it would be, I mean, out of everyone, like out of the current like Wes Anderson players, um, Tilda Swinton would be an incredible Willy Wonka. Oh, lovely stuff. Yes, the Tinder, yeah, the Tinder swindler herself, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that would work. There we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write. Just we'll write a dear Wes Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were doing this podcast, and we thought you might be interested in this project. Well, funnily enough, he is kind of signed on to do a Roald Dahl adaptation for Netflix at the moment because they now own Ooh. the complete rights yeah. to all of Roald Dahl's stuff. And I know that um friend of the podcast who was on the rushmore episode so a nice connection david trumbull ah, nice uh works for netflix animation is kind of working on some of the role doll stuff that he cannot talk about so i kind of badger him from now and then going ah you, nice what are you working on are you going to meet wes anderson if you do can you get him on my podcast uh, and he's like ah, actually i think that one's not animated i think he's actually a live action film he's doing ah that's uh i didn't i i knew Netflix had obviously spent a lot of money on this Roald Dahl stuff. Um, I know there's a lot of very interesting things coming. I didn't realise Wes Anderson was lined up for it. But also, now you've said it, of course he is. Because, it is, <laughs> again, it, it's like Wes Anderson and stop motion. It is a perfect combination of kind of how they do things. Yes, yeah, yeah. there's a kind of cynicism to Roald Dahl stuff and a kind of uh, darkness that... Where Anderson can tap into, not like a, a Tim Burton darkness, but a kind of like almost real world, like the kind, of, yeah, as I said, like cynicism probably hits it better yeah, yeah. as a kind of descriptor. Um, so let's talk about Isle of Dogs. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. You're Rex, you're King, you're Duke, you're Boss. I'm Chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible alpha dogs. Atari Kobayashi, you heroically hijacked a junior turboprop XJ750. Minute, minute. 
and flew it to the island because of your dog. Darn it. I've got a crush on you. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog spots. Does anybody know? No. I've lost all of my pride. Spots, if he's alive, may very well be living even at this moment as a captive prisoner. Somebody is up to something. Will you help him? The little pilot. Why should I? Because he's a 12-year-old boy. Dogs love those. We'll find him. Wherever he is, if he's alive, we'll find your dog. It's going to be a fight. I wish somebody spoke his language. Wow. To the north. A long, rickety causeway over a noxious sludge marsh leading to a radioactive landfill polluted by toxic chemical garbage. That's our destination. Great. Got it. Get ready to jump. So, before we find out about your relationship to this film, Ian, as I like to do with all my guests on this podcast, can you please give us a synopsis for this film? Okay, so I, I, I Love Dogs is... So it is... The dystopian near-future city of Megasaki in Japan has had an outbreak of dog flu. Uh, Due to the risk of it crossing over into the human population, the cat-loving and corrupt Mayor Kobayashi signs a decree banishing all dogs to Trash Island, an island just off the coast where all the city's refuse is sent. The first dog sent is Spots, who is a dog that served as the bodyguard to Atari Kobayashi, who is the orphaned nephew and now ward of the mayor. Six months later, Atari steals a plane and flies to Trash Island to rescue Spots. After crash landing, he is rescued by a pack of democratic dogs led by Chief, a former stray. The pack decides to help Atari find Spots, all while a foreign exchange student at a local school newspaper investigates a conspiracy about a possible cure. That is perfect. That is... I. I, I I guess you pre-wrote that, or are you reading? Oh, that? It's pre-written. It's pre-written. That's lovely. I That's lovely. Uh, I, I, I could tell you've listened to the podcast before. A lot of, some guests. I got you. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm calling them out. Well, I'm glad I can, I can call them out because I don't listen anyway. You didn't do your homework, guys. All right. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You didn't do your homework. You didn't know that I was. Little... I, I wrote it. I write it on the sheet. Anyway, but uh, didn't read that either. So fuck you guys. I, I listen, man. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> fuck all those other people. Uh, oh, uh, a bit of a yeah. Is, is that dog flu you've got there, Ian? With that cough or? Uh, oh, this is uh, if we if we want a bit of realness. Uh, I had COVID just before Christmas, and I've had a cough ever since. Oh shit! The, the, Which the... is not. Not ideal. I'm still managing to put the, the the best way to describe it is uh, occasionally it feels like you know when it's really cold mm-hmm. and like it feels like your lungs are cold. Yes, <laughs> it's occasionally that feeling. It's really annoying. But a couple of people I know have had similar, and apparently I'm at the 
it usually lasts about like six to eight weeks. So you're at the and tail I'm kind end. of kind of around the the tail end of it now. But don't if it's still here in like say four weeks, then Trash Island might be yeah. where I have to go. <laughs> You'll be going to the real Isle of Dogs in, in London. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, perfect. So yeah, when did you first come about this film and what's your relationship with it? Um, so. I, I mean that the the short answer to that is I watched it immediately as soon as it came out because it's a Wes Anderson film and I love stop motion. But to kind of go into it a bit deeper than that, I have like a really weird thing with stop motion and puppetry and stuff like that because I don't know what it is about it. I don't know whether it is about turning like lifeless and inanimate things into living things or what. But I'm just, I'm I'm obsessed with it. So whether that is like the, uh, I think it's Studio Leica, so like all of the Kuva and the Two Strings, Box Trolls, things like that, down to, I was talking to my partner about this earlier because I still think she thought I was joking. Um, it's not stop motion, it's puppetry, but the Dark Crystal TV series? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it like, it properly like sent me into like a weird depression spiral. Because it was so beautifully beautiful and creatively done, and like, and every single part of the frame was alive. But someone has had to think about. So it was all, to, yeah. It was it was insane, and it was the first time ever I thought like, oh, I've wasted my life. Yeah, this is what this is what I should have been doing. It's this kind of thing, and like, again, I don't know what it is about this kind of medium, but it's just. Just when it's done, even when it's done badly, but when it's done well, it is. There's nothing quite like it. Yes. Um, I, I remember when the advent of Vine came out and kind of that yeah. idea that you could create some form of like stop motion yourself at home and that kind of like being able to like, I don't know, rig a camera up and kind of have it on, yeah, have your phone on like a little stand or something or makeshift something and create like these stop motion videos there's such like a i don't know a sense of achievement of doing it mm. so doing it on like this kind of scale like anyone who does it whether it's Ardman or Leica i think Leica pips this film for having the longest stop motion film ever which would be Kubo and the Two Strings it's a, yes a minute yeah. longer than this film but like just i'm watching the behind the scenes stuff with any of that like it's always fascinating because you see oh the the, the the time lapse so box trolls has a great post credit scene with yes. it um but there's a load of isle of dogs where it's a time lapse of people doing stop motion which in, in itself is kind of time lapse but yes. seeing that it, it's basically my crack like i could i could watch those videos over and over again until someone has to uh tell me to stop pry you um, away yeah yeah i i, I get yeah. it it's it's, it's 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 something about it and it is that thing of it, it, it it lives in this kind of gray area between live action and animation because there, yeah there is a because it's not it's not animation like if if you think about it it's it it's not what you would say animation is because it is all so there was a youtube video which was i think it was an interview with like the maybe director of photography i think it was a guy who used to basically like run errands for Ardman. And Isle of Dogs is made with a very affordable Canon camera. Yes. 
<laughs> like it's not even anything fancy. Um, and because I checked the price of that, I now keep getting Amazon uh, emails telling me, "Hey, we see you're interested in cameras." It's like, <laughs> well, keep keep it up. On the right day, I might uh, might turn my hand to it. But yeah, it, it's it like you said, it's such like a weird middle ground between the two. Mm-hmm. Um. And it also perfectly lines up to kind of what Wes Anderson does as well, which is like what I said, I'm surprised he's only made, because I know Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think he drove animators insane Mm -hmm. because he kept trying to get them to do things, which is really difficult to do because he was directing it like it was a, like you would a real life film. Yes. And it's just like, no, this doesn't work. We can't, we can't actually do that. And they had to redesign and rebuild things. But in I'm trying to trying to phrase this in a way that isn't just like colossally wanky, but in in going smaller, it allows Wes Anderson to kind of the scale goes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like every, everybody loves a 90 degree Wes Anderson tracking shot, mm-hmm. right? That is just going down a long length of things, and because the sets in so I think the biggest Isle of Dogs set is like 16 meters long. Um. And it is 60 meters long, so the camera can go the entire length okay. down the thing, which is the most Wes Anderson thing you could possibly do. And it just wouldn't quite be, I, I guess kind of Moonrise Kingdom has, has similar in kind of like the camp kind of thing. But the scale feels so much bigger when it's stop motion because because everything is smaller, everything looks bigger. I, and I, And it's that idea that like every, like, every single frame like mm. somebody has had to come in and like move everything like so yeah when you start to think of those sequences where it's like kobayashi's addressing the kind of nation or the townsfolk of Nagasaki, it's like when you've got those crowd shots it's like every single face and person has been moved in that and it's i think that, yeah it's, it's a record number of kind of puppets that were made for this film it's uh, like a thousand kind of puppets had yeah. to be made and tons like multiple thousand um faces as well because obviously they have to yeah, create and- the different faces for the different like expressions and stuff like that it's just insane yeah and there was 240 sets yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, it's um it, it's just insane and it's one of those films where i think researching it made me appreciate it's kind of it's to, to 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 go full me on this, I'm going to use an example which is a post-apocalyptic film. It's kind of like weirdly Mad Max, okay? Because I'll, I'll I like I I like Mad Max, and then you find out it's all real, like all of the stunts and stuff like that. Where, mm-hmm. Like the more you learn about it, the more impressive it actually becomes. Yeah, and it's the same with it's the same with this because, like you said, it's there is computer effects in it, but it's only really for the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of it is kind of in front of green screen, but like the, there's a mushroom cloud that was actually stop motion animated. All of the fight scenes where it's like the cartoon, yeah, um, Beano esque, like kind of yeah, of smoke. Beano esque is a perfect, <laughs> a perfect phrase for that. Um, but that was all like cotton wool, and the fire was stop motion, and all of the fur and things like that, and it is the shortcuts they could have taken mm-hmm. would would have saved them millions and months <laughs> but 
they didn't. And it, I, I think it really comes across in it. Well, yeah, I mean, Wes, obviously you don't be, you don't become Wes Anderson without being a perfectionist with stuff like that. Yes. Um, but it's just that level of control. I think really, you just really get it. And, and again, like you said in, I think that might be, this is basically therapy. I like this. Um, <laughs> I think that might be why I like stop motion so much is because every single thing has been done. Like nothing, nothing was, nothing was by chance. Nothing was by anything. It's somebody has figured out every single thing to do with making this lump of, you know, all this model look entirely alive. Yeah, I think I, 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 I think the same could be said about like traditional animation. But I think what makes stop motion different is the tactility of all of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's almost like our kind of brains are programmed to be like, oh, well, somebody just picked up a pencil or kind of a digital pen and drew that, and it's it's the same process of just doing loads and loads and loads and loads of drawings and kind of like this yeah. drawing. Do you know what I mean? Like a flick book almost. But like, there's something just kind of magical about stop motion. Um, but I need to backtrack, and because this is the only time I'll ever be able to speak about my kind of relationship <laughs> to this film, and possibly kind of outs me as being like an absolute idiot when it comes to being a film fan. Um, so I had like I basically booked a trip to Berlin with my then girlfriend, uh, and we'd like. Airbnb and stuff like that, and realised we can't get anywhere that's anywhere near the kind of centre of Berlin. We've kind of like <laughs> out on the peripheries of everything, and then it turned out when we were there, we we're kind of like, oh, what are all these like uh, banners about, like with with a bear on it, stuff like that? Like, oh, what's all these like barricades and kind of uh, the kind of like main <laughs> square and stuff like that, like what's this red carpet about? And then kind of did some Googling. I'm like, the Berlin Film Festival 2018 is happening right now. <laughs> and then kind of like doing some more research. It's like the opening film for the festival is Isle of Dogs. And then nice. our trip then became like this. This is probably why we're not together. Uh, <laughs> or part of the reason <laughs> was uh, me kind of saying, right, how can we meet Bill Murray? Like, Bill Murray is in town. <laughs> we are in town the same time. As and obviously you hear the <coughs> stories of Bill Murray kind of like, I don't know, just turning up to a bar or kind of like you're tying your shoelaces and you stand up and he's there or helps you yeah, tie like up you, your you shoelace and go... Yeah, uh, no, Bill, Bill Murray's closer. He's closer to weather than he is uh, an actual celebrity sighting. Exactly. Like he's, yeah, some, yeah. he's something that happens to you rather than you meet him. And all, all, all over Berlin as well, they had these uh, missing posters of spots on lampposts and stuff like that. And then like little, um, little those like little tear away things that you could. Yeah. I think it's like for a website and stuff like that, kind of, or like gave you the trailer for the film. I think the biggest kicker for me throughout the whole thing was two days into a, or like basically the day after the premiere of Isle of Dogs, we found out that our Air Airbnb host was working at the Berlin Film Festival and said to us, hey, if there's any films you want to go see, let me know. Oh, and it was like, oh, that's a pain. It's like, 
she potentially could have got us into an after party or something. Do you know what I mean? We could have like yeah. we could have we could have at least like stood awkwardly at the bar or like in the vicinity of Wes Anderson, Tilda Swinton. Jeff Goldblum, Brian Cranston, Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman. <sighs> we could have, we could have been there. Like I could have answered one of the questions on this podcast: Have you met a Coppola? And been like, I fucking met two of them, baby. But I was too much of a fucking idiot to realise that the Berlin Film Festival was happening when we were there. Ah, impressively done. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, it, it, that that's a really difficult moment as well because it's like. I want to kind of ask her if she could have got us into Isle of Dogs. Yeah. But I, I would rather not know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the film we ended up going to see was a uh, Robert Pattinson and miniature pony film called Damsel. And it was kind of like, we'll take what, we'll take what we've got. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll take that. So the, the kind of film why it's taken Robert Pattinson this long to kind of get people to respect him again yeah 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 i guess <laughs> or like it's a it's a step backward film well yeah in his kind of fallow years where it's like i want to do anything that is anti-twilight it was it was that period of uh robert pattinson's career but um yeah and then and then came back to the uk kind of downtrodden like uh tail between my legs like a kind of uh shame dog and i remember like I don't, just being my, my excitement for the film was at fever pitch at that point and yeah. i remember seeing that i think it was one eight hundred uh 180 the strand had a isle of dogs exhibition on which was like for someone like you talking about your like love for stop motion oh, yeah. was actual sets from the film like on display and it was like talk about the the appreciation you have for the art form and the film itself seeing those sets i think kind of like and it, i think it was, might have been just after the film had come out or we had yeah we'd just seen the film and then kind of a couple of days later or the day after went to the exhibition and it was like i i love this film even more like just seeing these sets <laughs> yeah it, it's it's like i said i think seeing like that the, yeah, the, the peek behind the curtain really helps appreciate you just appreciate how insane kind of an accomplishment of a film like this is, mm-hmm. and yeah, I'm very jealous. I, if if I'd known, uh, well, I, uh, that that sounds like something I would have known about, but I was busy or something like that. But that's uh, that would have been awesome. I think they did a similar thing for the French Dispatch as well, and yeah. With that one, they recreated the cafe that Timothy Chalamet's character and his kind of cohort inhabit. Yeah. They had kind of recreated that, and that was like end of the experience. And what they had at the Isle of Dogs one was a recreation of the like noodle bar that Boss, the Bill Murray character, oh the sp- the sports team, yeah, um, the, the baseball one, team, yeah, it had a recreation like of life size that you could go get noodles at. That's cool. The, the closest I've been to something like that is we did, uh, me and a friend of mine um, at the time did uh, a secret cinema, did the Grand Budapest Hotel. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so it was, the, it was the first secret cinema that they announced the film beforehand. So I'm fairly sure when we saw it, it wasn't like officially 
out yes yeah, in yeah, uk yeah. cinemas yet and that was fun they just had this old abandoned building in like uh farringdon or something done up as the grand budapest hotel Did- um didn't they have actors who were like, if you weren't in period appropriate attire, would kind of like lambast you and kind of be like? They they had people dressed as secret police going around. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this. This is insane. Yeah, if you're wearing a pair of night um, trainers, they kind of like, kind of like, what what are these? Like, what are those? Like, well, then they'd ask for. So you had to. Part of your ticket was basically papers. So they'd ask to see him. It was like this is. This is bizarre, but I am so glad we're here. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's uh, I'm I'm jealous of that. I remember seeing that as well, kind of. Uh, yeah, seeing the tickets for that. I mean, do I like? Uh, I think again, I had a girlfriend who was at that time who was uh, allergic to Wes Anderson, so it would have been like I would have gone on my own. So I would have been that yeah. guy, like, "Hello, <laughs> one ticket, please." Yeah, it was um, not not to shit too much on Secret Cinema. Um, it was like oh no, shit on them, shit on them. They are they yeah they've they've, they've was, ousted themselves of being like an absolute. Oh, they they don't look after the people they hire. That yes. kind of thing. That sounds like they're an awful, awful company. But it was just before. It was just at the tail of it, tail end of when you could, without smiling, say it was affordable. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was it was still expensive, but it was it was like 40 quid. Mm-hmm. And that's not like for for the experience that's not bad, but after that the next one they did was like 80 or 90 or something like that and, and now I've increased. stopped even looking at them. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I, I'm glad I went and I'm glad I went for that film, but yeah. Anything else, yeah, they can fucking stick it up their ass. I think like when they got awarded money so like when they were trying to save cinemas and it's like these fucking assholes don't deserve the money like that yeah they're, they're, their pockets are lined plenty You're like fuck secret cinema uh i didn't think this podcast would become the fuck secret cinema podcast but here nice. we are Ian. uh so well, well, at, at some at some point you're going to run out of uh coppola family members so it's good to have your uh your next one lined up my soapbox to, to stand on um <laughs> So yeah, let's let's talk about the film and let's let's pick apart some of the scenes. So what are what are scenes that stand out for you, Ian? Uh, so for me, um, it's the scene. <laughs> um, so it it's actually got uh, it features all of the uh, Coplas we're talking about. So it is the Alpha Dog Pack themselves, mm-hmm. um, who briefly I need to go through their names because it is one of the best jokes of the film. So. They're, they're a pack of dogs who are democratically votes on every decision, and all of their names are pseudonym or uh, synonyms for leader. So you have chief, rex, king, duke, and boss. And it's like, that is actually genius. So it's them squaring off against um, the other dogs. I have that clip right here. Nice. Wait a second. Before we attack each other and tear ourselves to shreds like a pack of maniacs, let's just open the sack first and see what's actually in it. It might not even be worth the trouble. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. Hi. Right. 
A rancid apple core, two worm-eaten banana peels, a moldy rice cake, a dried-up pickle, tin of sardine, bones, a pile of broken eggshells, an old smushed-up rotten gizzard with maggots all over it. Okay, it's worth it. Get out of here and don't come back. Sheesh, Igor, I, I think he chewed your ear off. Hmm. <laughs> it's just it's just brilliant. And again, it's got the it has the Beano style fighting in, and I think it is a perfect scene that kind of lays out what the film is. Um and then it's also got like the stupid jokes of so I think just after that, um Chief, so the Brian Krantz, like the the central dog. Um, says something along the lines of "You guys sicken me," or "You got that's disgusting," and then throws up and keeps talking to them. Yeah, you guys make me sick. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I said, it just perfectly outlines, I think, what you're expecting. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it, it's it's kind of actually it's a actually I'll come on to that bit in a minute. It's just great. Like I, I again, I think that that scene could serve as the trailer for it. Um, definitely, definitely. Well, let, let, that gives us a perfect jumping off point to talk about the cast in this film, especially that central pack of dogs. So, hmm. as we've mentioned, Chief is voiced by um, Brian Cranston. We also have Bob Balaban as King. So he's King, yeah. Uh, Bill Murray as Boss. Jeff Goldblum as Duke and Edward Norton, probably in his most Edward Norton playing Rex. And what an what an ensemble for a group of dogs, right? Oh yeah. It it's um and, and it's not just the who, you know, it it's a lot of the time I think you have animated films with good casts. You always say, like, oh, imagine if it was live action but with this i don't think you have to because their voices are perfect for everything yes. like if you if you're gonna get a voice in jeff goldblum's gonna be top of the list bill murray's gonna be top of the list brian cranston is gonna be kind of top of the list it all just it it is borderline perfect casting for kind of who they are there's a great youtube clip of interviews with the cast yes so where they've yeah they've done it like it's like the ardman creature comfort stuff mm -hmm. so it's clearly an interview with the, so the best one's edward norton um so it's an interview clearly with the actor and then they've animated the <laughs> actual dog characters to be doing the answers um and edward norton was clearly slightly too close to the microphone so they have his dog playing with the microphone as yeah, he's talking yeah yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it, and I mean, then if you go further down as well, so like, um, Lee Schreiber Spots. rocks up. Yes. Um, Tilda Swinton plays a pug called Oracle. Scarlett Johansson is a, it's like a fancy show dog. Harvey Keitel turns up. Yes. Um, F. Murray Abraham. Um, and then that's, that's <laughs> just had like a weird out of body experience of me about to use the phrase. And that's just the dogs. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> and what, like, all of them are just like perfectly kind of in tune. And those interviews you talk about, I love that you just get the flavor of who the people are. Yeah. And you, you said that um, Edward Norton is your favorite. 
my favorite is Jeff Goldblum's for this exact reason. And I love his name, Duke. It reminds me of, uh, would you know who I'm talking about if I said, would you know who I was talking about? Of course, Duke Ellington. That's right, Duke Ellington. I think that is perfect. That is that is the most Jeff Goldblum you could ever yeah. get. And it tells you, as a piece of, you'd imagine that would be like a part of the EPK for the film, like the electronic press yeah. kit. And it tells you nothing about the film itself. Like the rest of them are kind of like explaining who their characters are, kind of like delving into what the film is about somewhat. Like uh, Lee Schreiber's interesting because he sounds somewhat kind of like his character, who's this kind of prim and proper and kind of like, has these responsibilities i think lee schreiber's voice has that and like the way he is kind of yeah it, it, that's where he perfectly fits kind of the characters he plays whether it's like uh his his character in spotlight where he's this kind of like very down yeah, yeah. the line uh right things need to be done this way let, 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 let's get it done and i think bill murray's interview really perfectly sums up who he is to Wes Anderson. Well, a mascot is someone that gets taken along for the ride. When there's going to be a great success, the chance of a great success, when there's the chance of a great success, you need a mascot. Someone that's going to be with you when things get tough, but someone that you're really going to want to be there when things go well. That is basically Bill Murray's role in a Wes Anderson film, right? That it that is Bill Murray in a Wes Anderson film. He is the mascot. He is, he is the mascot. I can now just imagine like a proper sport mascot of Bill Murray. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I'm not sure they the have Wes... that for golf, but like I yeah. know that's what he's into, but I, I want to see it. Yeah, no, that yeah, that 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 Jeff Goldblum one is perfect. It's like we as people, we don't deserve dogs and we don't deserve Jeff Goldblum. And we certainly don't deserve Jeff Goldblum as a dog. As a dog, no. But yeah, no, that, that mascot point is, I, I love his character. Um, Boss just, they're a very good ensemble because even though they're, the, the dialogue's quite similar to kind of the, what we talk about with stop motion as well, is there aren't really any wasted lines for the dogs. Like everything is, it is a very, very tight script mm -hmm. um and i think that comes out with all of the dogs have their own characters straight away yes yeah, just yeah, with yeah. How, how how they're animated how the voices were cast how it's written like you just you just get what they're what they're there for and you get these lovely like conversations and tidbits about who they used to be whether it's like they have that conversation about their their favorite food and stuff like that and like you kind of like uh, I think Boss says, like, oh, I always used to get a hot dog on game day and stuff like that. Like, I used to love that. Or we get that really heartfelt um, speech from Chief when he's talking about, like, you get a real, like, insight to it's his like, backstory about being a stray and, like, uh, he's always... It was chilly. Like, he had, like, chilli noodles or something fed yeah. to him in a shed. Yeah, because yeah. he bit somebody. Yeah. And it's, like, it's heartbreaking and also, like, a lovely bit of exposition to who that character is. It's not 
it doesn't feel like wasted exposition or it's kind of like someone turning to the camera and going this is who this character is it it, it feels it i don't know it informs the story going forward as well as kind of giving us a glimpse to who that dog was in the past yeah and and a, a, a lot of films are guilty of that feeling like it's come out of nowhere mm-hmm. while with here or with with isle of dogs you you kind of get that chief there's something you know it's it, it's not out of nowhere that these big kind of bits of exposition come out it's you knew something was wrong and it makes sense when he he's telling the story as well it's not just like a random turn to camera and uh you know full shakespeare kind of thing it's everything that comes out perfectly makes sense even if it is just these lonely dogs on an island talking about kind of what life used to be like um because i think boss the bill murray character he talks a lot about how like the team were undefeated Mm. when he was the mascot of them and things like that and it's like that is exactly what you could imagine yeah (laughs) people in that situation uh talking about and king is like used to be the face for like a a dog food brand and the dog treat yeah yeah and yeah I, i love all of that stuff and i love the fact that like even jokes that are put in like Bill, Mar- uh, not Bill Murray. Jeff Goldblum's character Duke has this ongoing joke, like, "Oh, did you hear about? Did you hear the rumor about this? Did you hear the rumor about that?" And all of that kind of feeds into the plot and like uh, gives us seed stuff for later on. Whether it's, I think the first one he says is like, "Did you hear about the rumor about Nutmeg and another dog?" Like they they made it yeah. together, and then when chief eventually interacts with nutmeg he kind of brings it like brings that up and like we get it's a very weird scene because it's kind of like basically dogs flirting which like normally in real life is what sniffing of the ass and kind of like rubbing up against each other and it's like i don't yeah, want well, to see any lipsticks coming out guys come on <laughs> yeah it's uh that would be a different film Yes. But it's, God, imagine if your job was to animate that. Oh, what a lipstick. No, just, just that's what you, it's, it's like with uh, Watchmen, there would have been an animator's job to animate Dr. Manhattan's blue dick. Like that had to be done by someone. <laughs> but the, the, my favorite bit with the nutmeg scene is, again, it's kind of a recurring joke. They come back to a few times of, so she's a show dog. And she used to be able to do tricks. And Chief asks, asks her to show him them. Um, and she just kind of like stands up and it's like, oh, but you've got to imagine that I'm like juggling or I've got a 10 pound bowling ball on my nose. Yeah, or yeah, I'm yeah. Uh, juggling things through a hoop of fire. And then he imagines it while she's doing it. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. just like, yeah, that, that's my humor. That's uh, like just on the line between stupid and clever. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, Again, I mean, for this podcast could be very short because it could just be us saying, well, it's very Wes Anderson and then we just call it a day. But it is. It, it's I, it's I, brilliant. I feel like there's some, some certain things we need to talk about. Like there is obviously there was, uh, I feel like controversy might be too uh, serious of a term, but there was some kickback to this film in regards to the way it handles Japanese culture and kind of... Yeah, so I think it's worth it's worth noting as well that um, before, you know, because it, it leads nicely onto that, um, 
Isle of Dogs has one of the best opening title descriptions of any film. Mm-hmm. So the the humans in the story speak in their native tongue, occasionally translated via bilingual interpreter, foreign exchange student, or an electronic device. All barks have been rendered into English. And that's great. And so you don't understand anything the Japanese characters are saying. Um, You understand what the dogs are saying. Um, It's very similar to, have you watched Hell in the Pacific? No. So Hell in the Pacific, um, uh, speaking of uh, famous families, uh, is a John Borman film. Okay. That is Lee Marvin and Toshihira Mifune. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both play fighter pilots that crash in the Pacific and get washed up on an island. And it wasn't subtitled at all. Amazing. So you, as a, as a Western person watching it, um, you don't understand what the Japanese pilot is saying. And as a Japanese person watching it, you don't understand what the American pilot is saying. And it's just about them trying to communicate and what they're doing. And it's a very, very well done film. Um, And that was kind of the only real example for an entire film that I could kind of think of where they'd done this. Um, I think where that film, like that film works, and I guess where this film could have worked for a japanese market because i know that uh, a lot of japanese like speakers and the japanese dub of this film they've just dubbed the dogs into yeah. japanese as well so you've got uh, sometimes lines doubled over where it's somebody trans like a dog like do you know what I mean somebody translating from japanese into english yeah. you've got um you've got text on screen which i guess that Wes Anderson just wanted there as kind of flourishes, but Japanese readers had um, like complaints that it moves too quickly. So they found yeah. it disorientating where it's like, I, I wanted to keep up what was going on. But I think the intention of what he was trying to do was create that, that thing that humans don't understand what dogs are saying. And predominantly in this film, the dogs are the lead yeah. characters. And it's, I guess a way he could have done it and to kind of double back to a reference I made earlier is do it in that Charlie Brown style. He could have had the humans talk in a kind of gobbledygook. He got and, and like could have yeah. said it anywhere in that in that in that in that instance. But I think at the same time the film deals with that idea of things being uh an excuse the kind of big Coppola reference here lost in translation like and that that the, the, obviously the dogs uh, are trying to figure out what atari is saying and vice versa they they're trying to get along and like uh they yeah they're trying to understand each other which works amazingly for a western audience i just don't yeah. think it translates the other way and that's not to say that wes anderson in any way did that in any malicious intent he's obviously a privileged like white westerner and kind of yeah had all the good intentions because you can tell like there is so much love care and attention to honoring and kind of uh paying homage to so many beautiful 
Japanese films or traditions or kind of yeah the like imagery in this is like Hokusai the the famous artist who did yeah. the, the wave and stuff like that all of that stuff's in there but like at the same time it's like uh, at the same time like you've honored all of that but you've accidentally made the film slightly alienating for the yeah, country in which it's set it's weirdly it's yeah it's a love letter to Japan that doesn't translate to a Japanese audience yeah <laughs> which is it's weird and it, it's one of those things I think again it's um you know to play my privilege card if you will um as a you know as a straight white western guy it's it's something that i don't think i would ever fully like watching it i never would have thought that yes because it's like oh he he loves japan that's great that's a good thing and then you read about it and it's like oh actually i i get why you know parts of this like um i think people a lot of what i read kind of appreciated the intention behind it yes definitely Rather than, rather than you know out and out kind of lambasting it, it was it was all like yeah we can tell he loves the culture. It's just there's something there's like a connective step because weirdly the so it's not Japan um, so it's kind of West versus East cinema. Um, one of the best Western takes on Eastern culture um, is apparently Kung Fu Panda. Okay, so. The the Chinese government um, actually did like a um, basically an internal review to figure out how a Western animation studio so perfectly captured Chinese culture and they couldn't in <laughs> animated films. Um, so like there is a there is a way to do it. I just yeah there was there's there's clearly something not there. And like you said, if it is. Uh, because I, I think the Charlie Brown point you made, I think that's very similar to how The Simpsons did it. Because mm-hmm. um, I was trying to remember that that it was definitely a cartoon. It was a dog not being able to understand his owner, and then suddenly he understands Sit. Yes, and I think that was The Simpsons with Bart training Santa's little helper. But like you said, that there is definitely a way to do it that i think could bridge the gap well, I think a little the, bit the way it could work is for the japanese dub for the japanese to then be dubbed in english yeah is yeah. you just you just you just flip it you flip it because you create that kind of that feeling of alienation that obviously like we have and i guess it comes and it's something uh i touched upon in an episode i did on prisoners of the Ghostland when talking about Sion sono's films and just Japanese cinema in general, is that idea of like there are there are certain touch points in Eastern cinema and stuff like that. Yeah. That we will never understand. And it kind of makes them like exotic and for want of a better like very foreign. Do you know what I mean? To us. And it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. makes it kind of fantastical in a weird way. And it's like it's cause there's so much like uh, stuff that we'll never understand, whether it's like culturally like translations even when they're subtitles don't work a hundred percent do you know what I mean and there's yeah. so much like there can be subtext to films and there can be like stuff that if you haven't like grown up in that culture in the same way that up until I don't know maybe 10 15 years ago 20 years ago watching American stuff 
like for do you know what I mean to, to to draw that comparison like that kind of uk versus american thing where it's like certain things don't translate it's like watching snl skits and it's like well i don't know about this very niche person or family guy for instance they would kind of do this cutaway to a person you've never heard about and you're like I guess it's funny like i don't i don't i don't get what they're riffing on right now but like, yeah i i think that the best example is always uh there is a spaced u.s pilot yes that just doesn't work there's an it crowd pilot which is awful because because again the humor is so british doesn't translate across the, the the best the best example i've ever heard of um the difference between uk and us comedy which i think perfectly sums that up is stephen fry was giving a talk um which i saw on youtube i would love to have been there but i saw it on youtube and he's basically saying so animal house so where uh belushi's climbing the stairs and the musician's playing and he grabs the car guitar and he smashes the guitar he was saying that a US comedian would want to play the Belushi role. A UK comedian would want to be the guitarist. <laughs> and it's yes. like, it's just, it's that we get our, broadly speaking, um, we get our humor from a slightly different thing. Like Black Adder was never on top. He, he was yeah. trying to get on top. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, you, can, you can draw the parallels as well to like UK versus US comedians, right? Like, US comedians yeah. kind of come on stage and be like, "Hey man, I'm I'm fucking great. Listen to what I gotta say. Isn't my life great? Like, I, fuck 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 everyone. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like, yeah, a, yeah. a British comedian would come on stage and be like, like, oh, like I'm I'm the butt of every joke. Do you know what I mean? Everything's like kind of it's a it's a low status and a high status thing in regards to kind of yeah. that split between comedy. Yeah, and then and then again that then also kind of brings us on to. Um, with cultural stuff anyway. So I, I've got a couple of like US friends. Um uh and they they've never been able to wrap their head around kind of like the U the the UK, not to go too political, the UK problem with class mm -hmm. and how like deeply ingrained that is. So there's a load of like comedians and TV and movies that are about that that, like you said, even Americans wouldn't fully get why that hits the way it does. Um, and then that's obviously compounded by having it in, uh, kind of again, Western speaking world with Japanese cinema. So I, I get, I don't want to say I get it. it, it it's like you said that there were, there were ways to get around kind of at least this problem people had with it, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's just, it's always weird that a love letter to Japan falls a little bit flat. Because I, I haven't read again. As in, I I don't speak Japanese. So, um, well, actually, you might you might be able to help with this uh, question. Um, I read somewhere that the the Japanese speaking part of it could have been seen more as an afterthought because it wasn't designed for an audience who would be able to understand it. Oh, I don't I don't necessarily know about that. Like that. Yeah. I really I really should have like thumbed through. This, uh, yeah, because um, script. I've asked that question because uh, Petros has an Isle of Dogs script book, <laughs> but it, it's you get what I mean. Like it, it's to it's a love letter to something that again some people have said 
as weirdly being dismissed while you're writing the love letter to the culture? Yes. So uh, let me see if... No, so the, the like, the Maya Kobayashi stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so when he first, like, addresses... So, yeah, it says here from the script itself, the mayor bi- uh, builds to an impassioned, rabble-rousing crescendo. His hands slice through the air, and he bellows f- with in finality. In in- oh no, no, he- no, 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 no! It is an afterthought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it says he bellows in English, "Banish all dogs, save Meg- uh, Megasaki City." Uh, of uh, yeah, of uni, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, I don't know. No, there is another line. It says our legal system provides for. Discerning opinion, science party, candidate, prophet, Wantanabe. I Yeah. I would really well, need uh, to... yeah. It is like interesting. I said, it's a, it's a, it's a comment I read uh in an article kind of on this on this very issue, but I can't uh can't have my own opinions on it because like I said, I just don't know. But it's it is an interesting issue, but I think what everyone can agree on is it was meant it was meant as a love letter. It was meant sincerely. Yeah, so um, I wanted to read a quote from uh, m- uh, Mo- Moko Uji, who is a writer for The New Yorker, hmm. who um, wrote about the film in its way of kind of, he said it complemented like Japanese culture and um, yeah. points out like that language is a key film of the movie. And he kind of said the yeah. following. Anderson's decision to not subtitle the Japanese speakers struck me as a carefully considered artistic choice. Isle of Dogs is profoundly interested in the humour and fallibility of translation. The beating heart of the film, uh, there is no such thing as true translation. Everything is interpreted. Translation is malleable and implicated always by systems of power. The film shows the seams of transition and uh, decimates space that is accessible and funny only to japanese viewers interesting yeah so i think i think that kind of sums up and 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 and, and I, I like watched a youtube video i think the guy's name is john flight just to kind of name check him but he kind of talked about the idea of the way that Wes Anderson uses the Tracy Walker character is for the audience, at least in the West, Tracy Walker speaks the same language as the yeah. dogs. Do you know what I mean? Because the dogs are speaking English, Tracy Walker speaks in English. So she kind of is a perfect conduit to be almost like their voice. And it's like it would kind of feel disingenuous if she was a Japanese character all of a sudden just speaking in english almost and it's like she she yeah it, and it is a way to kind of i don't know um uh, get around the whole thing that yeah there is arguments that she is very much a white savior character in this kind of japanese set film yeah it, it's you can't have in in a, in a film that has set out it set out how it's doing things in that it isn't translating japanese you would have to have a reason why she is speaking English all the time. Yes. And I I think that would feel 
the solution to that problem, that the problem is we need a character who can speak English. The solution to that is a foreign exchange student. Like it, it's that that is one of a couple of ways you could have done it, but I would argue the least jarring yes, of so, it. Rather so, than a Japanese character practicing English or something. So, it wouldn't quite fit. Friends of the podcast, uh, the Podchild Cinecast, did an episode on Isle of Dogs, and they kind of like outlined a perfect kind of workaround would be to, if they had focused the story on Tracy Walker's character, and it was this kind of fish out of water story, and she was our lead into this, it would kind of make a bit more sense. Do you know what I mean? That like, yeah, she has more to do and is kind of, she's our central figure. So it makes sense that she like she is speaking English and she is kind of doing what she's doing. And yeah, she is this fish out of water. But that yeah, but like I think I don't know. As 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 we keep saying, and it's we are definitely not the people to speak on this, right? As kind of two two white yeah, guys. Yeah. But like I, I I think yeah, really it's to listen to the voices of the culture that it could affect and it's it's good to hear that, like, uh, I know it, apart from those kind of gripes about how the film translates into Japanese, it got favorable reviews in Japan. So, like, it, it wasn't like nobody was up in arms and kind of picketing the film being like, this is, like, racist to our culture and stuff like that. I think people saw enough that Wes Anderson's heart was very much in the right place when making this film. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, I, ev- yeah everything uh, i've kind of looked to is that is again it's it's the, the the worst things i well the the worst things that aren't in the theme of like youtube comments which nobody should read anyway like generally was like we, we get what he's trying to do and we appreciate it but like and it's i i think that's uh <clears throat> i i think that's a fair a fair point to say but again it's uh there are so many nuances to things like this that it's difficult to uh, difficult to really kind of talk about it. But I, I get it, and again, the same. I, I I appreciate what he was trying to do, and it is good to see that it was received. At least the intention by everyone was received the way it would have been intended to. So we kind of talked about the Tracy Walker character, who was Greta Gerwig. Yes. Um, you also obviously then had a lot of the Japanese characters, um, one of who is assistant scientist Yoko Ono. Yes. Which, which was uh, for the first time I watched it, I think I thought it was just a joke. And then in researching it, I found out it is legitimately Yoko Ono. Yes. Yeah. Which is fantastic. <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. Which I guess kind of like. Uh stepping back to that kind of the 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 the, the like it, it issues that people have with this film it's like she could have easily played the translator in this film yes yeah do you know what I mean somebody yeah. who is is actually bilingual not francis mcdormand <laughs> but I, yeah i i mean I, I i do wonder how some of the casting because like we said the, the cast is insane but i think like the interpreter might be kind of a symptom of I have Frances McDormand's number, and she's available. Oh, and it's very much but, a case of yeah. like, 
in regards to that, I think like the whole idea of like having an interpreter and stuff like that is like this is supposed to be almost like a uh um a worldwide broadcast and she's almost like the the correspondent from the US almost and it kind of plays into that idea that the, that this is very much playing to a western audience and like it, it adds yeah. into that whole thing of the stuff we were talking about earlier yeah exactly but like can you can you imagine having like the phone book Wes Anderson has oh. and you're making you're making a film and like Jeff Goldblum calls you and says, hey, I hear you're making a film. Is there space for me? And you have to say no, because I've got Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Lee Schreiber, Tilda Swinton, Scarlett Johansson, Timothy Chalamet, Harvey yes. Keitel. We've managed to get Gene Hackman back. Like, you know, it, it's <laughs> 20 A-list names. Like, I, I do think the Francis McDermott thing might just be like, we need a character for her and all the dogs are taken. Well, yeah. Like, like let's like I'm just gonna quickly pull up the cast list of his newest film that is kind of wrapped right now, which Oh, it puts it puts French dispatch to shame. Well which like, is weird. We'll be covered <laughs> on this podcast because yeah. you guessed it, the screenplay, Roman Coppola is involved, so it's is gonna be talked about. So uh Margot Robbie. Uh Marco Robbie? Marco Robbie. Robbie. Uh, Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Adrian Brody, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Lee Schreiber once again, Jeff Goldblum, Maya Hawke, Fisher Stevens, Rupert Friend, Jeffrey Wright, Jason Schwartzman, Matt Dillon, Sophia Lillis, Hope Davis, Tony Rivoli. That is a fucking cast. And that's probably not even the half of it. That's probably like what they've eked out to deadline. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not even like the people who have taken covert planes to spain i think where they filmed it and like it's exciting yeah right? so that film yeah, is I, that that film's wrapped they've finished filming that film and we still don't really know a lot about it right no, it's called asteroid city all i know all, all i knew for a while was it's called asteroid city and it's got tom hanks and a wes anderson which i it's one of those things that i i want to say i'm surprised it's taken this long but he is so like Wes Anderson material. I keep doubting myself that this is his first one. You get what I mean? Like it's of course it's again it's it's to bring it back to the stop motion point. Of course Wes Anderson's doing stop motion. It's like of course Tom Hanks is in a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. It's it just works. What I love is the fact that Fisher Stevens has got this like big renaissance in being in Succession as kind of uh, Brian Cox's. Mm like lackey yeah. and kind of pops up in like every wes anderson film i think since the grand budapest hotel he's kind of like he's there as i think he's one of the society of crossed keys in that film and then pops up in this for a small voice part yes he, he is yeah yeah that now you said i was trying to place where he was in the grand budapest hotel but yeah he is part of that society and yeah maybe doesn't deserve it because let's not forget Fisher Stevens played a man of uh, mm -hmm. of Asian descent in not one but two films: the Family Classics, Short Circuit, yeah, one and two. Oh boy! Yes. <laughs> well, I I remember um, again not to go too deep into racial politics again out of nowhere. Um, there was a um. 
American Indian comedian um, who I think tweeted uh, basically saying like growing up his the big Indian character role models for Americans were Fisher Stevens in <laughs> Short Circuit and a Pooh, both of yes. which are white guys. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I think there's a big riff on that in an episode of Master of None as well, like where they kind of like, there's a yeah. big discussion between two characters about the fact that Fisher Stevens is a white guy. And like, but, but I think it was that that made me realize, and way too late, I was like, because I hadn't, I'd kind of watched them as a kid. And then like years later, it was like, fuck, mm. that's a guy in brown face kind of really like doing. He's not just doing like brown, but he's like doing voices. He's doing hand gestures. Like it's, it's well, that's on. the that that that's the thing with a, a lot of stuff like that. Where yeah, same with you. I I hadn't watched the short circuit films in. I watched them when I was like single digit age. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I remembered they were fun. You know, they were a bit stupid. Johnny Five, he's alive. It's great. But then, when you think back on it, I just remember an Indian doctor character. Like that that's all I could remember. And then yes. you saw this controversy come up and it's like, no, that can't be right. And you look it back now and it's horrifying. It's like, oh shit, this is, did we think this was okay? Yeah. Like, cause it's, it's obviously not okay. <laughs> but yeah. it's good. Yeah. It, it, it's good. To, cause he, he, he's, he is a very talented guy. Yeah. I, I, I think. I remember seeing him pop up in of all things, the night of the HBO drama with Riz Ahmed. I'm not sure if you watched that and John Turturro. I have, I have, I haven't watched it, but it's been on my like because uh, my understanding is it, it's a proper. Uh, you have to be in the right frame of mind thing. Yeah, it's dark, but like it's got. Like, yeah. <laughs> but Fisher Stevens pops up as a pharmacist in it, and I remember that being like, yeah, good. He's got a small role. He's in like he he, he does like do you know what I mean he. he he shouldn't be front and center. He's like he's done some bad shit. Like as uh, as Fisher Stevens, he needs to be paying his dues. Like, do you know what I mean? He doesn't need to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the last thing, um, I, 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 we, we kind of, we kind of touched on it at the beginning of the episode. Um, we do a, a monthly good bad movie kind of mini sode where we talk through a film. So it is very refreshing talking about a film I actually enjoy for a length <laughs> of time. But Fisher Stevens was in Super Mario Brothers. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think possibly that... I mean, to be fair, having our listeners get us to watch Super Mario Brothers nearly put me off doing a podcast. But <laughs> it was... Uh, that, that could well be the last thing I saw Fisher Stevens in before... Um, uh, because he he pops up in this as well, right? He's um, he is uh, one of I think the cannibal dogs. Uh, yeah, inverted so, commas. Yeah, so obviously the leader of the cannibal dogs is Harvey Keitel as Gondo, and I love their thing that they do when they're kind of when they're asked about the cannibalism and they kind of remember their kind of fallen compadre, mm. and it, it's like they all sort of go. Ooh, they're all like howl together and it's like moments like that and the kind of like embracing the the dog elements of these characters mm. that i think like makes this film like really beautiful and like I, I there's so there's so much to like enjoy about this film whether it's like 
just you could pick out frames of it and uh, that's a painting i'd hang that oh, up well, on my wall yeah I, I mean that's kind of like a that i think is a common thread for 99 <clears throat> percent of wes anderson scenes in general but this and fantastic mr fox especially just because again it does it has given him that extra level of control over the frame yes. because the one thing he couldn't necessarily control is an actual person <laughs> like every facet of a person and now he can so it is a beautiful film uh to watch and what i like as well is um i'm fairly sure the color palette is kind of like as if you're colorblind okay because uh there's a scene when they're in front of um they're walking through like an abandoned golf course and all the grass is gray yes yes, yes which yes. is how a which is how a dog would see it well what i love about like trash island is like the immense detail that the kind of designers went to kind of thinking about it and it's almost like a kind of tip in that everything mm. is kind of like sectioned off so they kind of you yeah. see them walk through bits and it's like the landscapes are made up from disposed paper or like there's that beautiful scene where they're having a discussion and it's in like this kind of shack they've met they've made out of bottles and it's like the bottle igloo basically yeah. yeah and it's like all of that stuff and you kind of get these like different areas of trash island of like made from different things whether it's like that kind of compressed metal that we first see of the island that spots is like dropped onto it's kind of you know like the classic like crushed car just blocks yeah of, yeah yeah crushed metal or yeah as i said paper or just this kind of decrepit looking place and then clearly before it became a dump it was a theme park there was a th yeah there's all sorts of like areas. there's a theme park there's like it's like a kobayashi themed theme park because uh at the beginning of the film it starts with like a brief history of like the kobayashi clan and let's, it was like let's, the... hear, let, 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 let's hear ah, that there we go Ten centuries ago, before the age of obedience, free dogs roamed at liberty, marking their territory. Seeking to extend its dominion, the cat-loving Kobayashi dynasty declared war and descended in force upon the unwary four-legged beasts. On the eve of total canine annihilation, a child warrior, sympathetic to the plight of the besieged underdog dogs, betrayed his species, beheaded the head of the head of the Kobayashi clan, and pledged his sword with the following battle cry haiku. I turn my back on mankind! Frost on windowpane. He would later be known as the boy samurai of legend, R.I.P. At the end of the Bloody Dog Wars, the vanquished mongrels became powerless house pets. Tamed, mastered, scorned. But they survived and multiplied. The Kobayashis, however, never forgave their conquered foe. What I love about that is that is basically the plot of the film as well like you are kind of told yes yeah you are told the plot of the film because it's almost like the 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 legend the prophecy has been kind of 
lived again with Atari as this kind of boy samurai who comes to take down the Kobayashi clan once again and kind of um, doesn't so much uh, uh, take the head off of uh, Maya Kobayashi, but at least kind of takes his political head off, right? And kind of usurps him as the mayor yeah. of Megasaki. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, like, you know, props to the line, beheaded the head of the head. Yes. Is, it's very, very Wes Anderson. I have a lot of time for that. But yeah, I, it's, it is a lot of foreshadowing. And I just love that whole scene as well. Because I think, like you said, there's a bit where it's the wave painting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But with dogs on. And... It's great, but I think the theme park on Trash Island is themed after that story. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when he's underneath, there's a, if you're below this height, you can't ride on the, the ride. And, um... Uh... What is the main guy called? I don't Atari know, or Spot? I can't see it. Uh, Atari. Yes. And Atari wants to go on it, and um, Chief is telling him he can't. And it's just a great little scene between them two of spot uh chief then pretends to walk away and atari goes on the ride anyway and it's it's just a really like night because in in the the if you boil it down it is a film about chief becoming accepting of who he is and learning to kind of basically just love again really yeah and become a dog Um, right he's like yeah he's been so reticent distrusting of the human race and it's like i don't it's, it's not i think brian cranston said in interviews like the whole film is about disenfranchisement and that <laughs> thing like you can kind of look at it as an analogy of like disenfranchised people or you can look at it as an analogy of like animal cruelty and stuff like that but i think the disenfranchisement of like people and kind of xenophobia or racism stuff like that and i weirdly it it feels prescient like now living in like the kind of under the draconian government that we're living in, in the fact of like, I'm sure that Boris Johnson and his cronies would happily subjugate like a lot of the lower classes to a trash Island as they are kind of well, trying yeah. to do through their policies. Yeah. And, it, and it, it also shows the impact that has on people because the whole thing with chief is like you said, he bit someone. But he never says, like, I'm, I'm an angry dog, I have problems, I hate people, whatever. All he says is, I bite. And you can see that really, it's, it's upsetting for him. Yeah. And he's just accepted that's who he is. Because he's been told constantly, he's been dumped on an island full of trash. And, you know, why wouldn't he? He bites, that's it, that's his problem, there's no fixing him. Yeah. And I, I just think that is a really, like, it, it's a, it, it just shows kind of the depth of the because again a, a, any anyone could have made a film about dogs being sent to an island and the like you know Lord of the Flies on a dump heap with dogs but what Wes Anderson brings to it is it's that level of detail mm-hmm. and a lot of people you would say you're over reading it or you're reading too much into it but. Wes Anderson does, he controls every facet of everything. So you know everything that's in there is done for a reason and on purpose. Yeah, what, what I love about um, the way it was animated as well is they did, 
then incorporated a thing called live live action video where they would kind of have a side by side of what they were animating and Wes Anderson they're like acting out like kind of the fr- like how the characters should move so they yeah. could kind of like so he was like genuine like, like he he was direct he was still directing like and I know it can be like a really gray area when it comes to something like stop motion animation because it's like I'm sure Wes Anderson couldn't get in there and do it all himself so there's like a thing of like who really is control do you know what i mean is it the is yeah it the lead like the the animation director for the film or is it like is it is it where's that do you know what i mean is it where's answered but like hearing those stories of him like no he was there still like kind of going i feel like the character should move like this or like this is kind of the emotionality i want for this scene or he was still there kind of like really pumping the blood through the veins of these puppets. Yeah. And the, the, a phrase that popped up a couple of times on, so on YouTube, they've got what I'm assuming is a lot of what would be like the special featurettes mm-hmm. yes. on Isle of Dogs. And a phrase gets brought up a lot of, they had a dog database. Yeah. So it was loads of videos of dogs doing various things. And I cannot explain what I would give to have access to that database. Yeah, and they have like, like they have dogs with like mounted cameras as well. You can kind so of. So I can like, I can, I could go one further with that. They had nine dogs. They were called Wolfie, Billy, Charlie, Hazel, Chocolate, Piglet, Treacle, Hooks, and Gruff. Ah, oh, yes, please. <laughs> it was. They had twenty-seven animators, ten assistants, and nine dogs. And it's like, yeah, this is that's uh, that's a place you want to be, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, obviously this film was what it was. It was made in the UK, right? It was. Uh, so I think it was East London. I yeah, think. And and that's where like London is where this story originates from, right? So Wes Anderson saw a sign for the Isle of Dogs when in like 2015 or something when he was going, yeah. and was like, oh, Isle of Dogs, like that sounds like. And then obviously percolated his mind, and then the the, the title almost works as a. Uh, uh, I don't know, like a kind of thing like I love dogs as well. And that it yeah. feels like it was a long time coming for Wes Anderson as well, because notoriously throughout his films, there is a lot of dog abuse, whether it is uh, <laughs> Major Hennessy in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, mm. who just kicks a dog for like, or like gets one of his lackeys to hit a dog at one point. There is uh, the dog in The Royal Tenenbaums who gets. Buckley, who gets run over at the end during the yeah, crash, yeah, and then there is the dog that gets an arrow through it in Moonrise Kingdom. So it's like this is almost Wes Anderson writing his wrongs for the dog abuse he's committed on the film. Yeah, they're, they're owed one. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I, I, I think that I, I think they would be happy with it. It's because uh, it does it 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 does. Um, like like you kind of mentioned with Chief, like it is about him becoming a dog. And I think this does perfectly, uh, like the audio we listened to earlier of the, the fight with them deciding whether it's worth it, it kind of perfectly encapsulates a dog's mindset with a lot of things. And I just think that's brilliant. Um, even if it is them um, being confused why they can't smell the robot dogs. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which, because yeah. uh, that's something we haven't mentioned in over an hour of recording. There are robot dogs, because of course there is. Yeah, they're so like 
the thing is the the story is so simple in this film but there's just so many like kind of little diversions and like little yeah little little bits and pieces whether it's the kind of like the government or the kind of yeah the powers that be coming to look for atari and these like great little interactions whether it's that first fight they have with the um with the kind of atari's getting lifted up and then they're yes, even still yeah. during the fight they're like we vote the the chief like fights fights the robot dog and he's like why me and they're like well you're you're, you're the most scrappiest one out of all of us like everybody says i i i and then they like he, he has to go fight it and stuff like that. I, I love all of that kind of stuff like and yeah like there's i don't know it's it's such a a layered and textured like story as well as being like really simple there's a bit of like the incredible journey or homeward bound in there as well as much as being like this thing about disenfranchisement and all of these kind of subtextual things that you can read into the film yeah yeah exactly there, there's a lot of different levels to it and i i think the more successful films like that you have to have a simple story behind it otherwise you would just get completely lost yes um and like you said that there's there's a couple of different i think simple things happening at the same time um but the transitions between them are very good as well because sometime it would be very easy to make it quite jarring going from the dog heavy trash island to basically like well, kind, kind, kind of just like Starship Trooper style news footage, yeah. Right, like well, it's like information um, dumps as well, right? It's like, yeah. Some of it, like, really, if it was live action, would be like quite boring. It's like, I think, yeah, I think this film gets away with the fact that it's stop motion, that like you're kind of swept up in the kind of beauty of all of it. Whereas, like, if it was live action, it'd be a bit like, oh, so now we are watching. Francis McDormand's character just like kind of monologuing to the camera while something's going on in the background. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And I, I think it also Wes Anderson gets a free pass with a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. because of how because of how stylized it is. It seems to be accepted, yes. and I'm, I'm not knocking that because. I love it. But he does get a free, like a lot of other people would be like, well, then they just had exposition for two pure minutes of talking about what was going on. It's like, yeah, but it was, it was good. It was well done. <laughs> it was done, done as an over the top mixed medium news story because a lot of the old footage of him is animated like a cartoon. Yeah. On the, when it's like on the TVs. Yeah. I love that, that it uses like anime animation and stuff. Like yeah. That. And it kind of, incorporates so many like aspects of that's what i mean like it is a massive love letter to, to japan in that way and kind of things that come from japan like one well, a lot of uh there's a lot of uh akira kurosawa in there yeah even down to like musical cues something we haven't even touched on the music <laughs> in this film by alexander Desplats is fantastic like the kind of whether it's like taiko drumming or that um there's that like whistling. There's that tune that kind of crops up a few times. Yeah, the whistling and that. So I I th I think the whistling is inspired by Seven Samurai, or it might be so, a cue from Seven Samurai. No, yeah, the cues from that. Is but then it, it's it's reworked sure. by them. But it, it's with, with any again. I I I think with the amount of Wes Anderson films you're doing, it's a conversation you'll have every single time. But 
his control of music is up there with like the because tarantino gets brought up a lot in uh conversations like that um james gunn as well deserves to be talked about with how he uses music um but wes anderson like the soundtracks he compiles and the scores um i don't think anyone quite because it wouldn't the Wes Anderson aesthetic only works if all of it is pulling together. Yes. Like, if the music was wrong, this film wouldn't work. If the animation style was wrong, it wouldn't work. If the cast were wrong, it wouldn't work. Like, th- there are so many... Which is why I don't think there are any other films like Wes Anderson films, because it's so easy to do it... You aren't going to do it badly. You're going to do it worst film ever made level. Like there's there's no other way to do it apart from the Wes Anderson way, like. Well, yeah, and in regards to the soundtrack, I love the fact that even though it is very like Japanese tinged and very much this love letter, he still has chance to drop in this absolute banger of like a kind of American folk rock song. Which is I Won't Hurt You by the West Coast Pop Art Experiment Band, which just. This is when they're walking over the bridges, right? Yeah, when they're kind of walking along Trash Island. Yeah. And you can hear like an element of this could fit in, like this could easily be pulled off the soundtrack from the Darjeeling Limited, Rushmore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. it, It works, it still works perfectly within the context of, of, of this film. And I like, I like that uh, Wes Anderson still gets to kind of be like, it's not a Stone song, but I've still got a kind of like American kind of <laughs> pop rock banger in there. And like, but that, yeah, that, that, that scene as well, again, I mean, and again, it's, it is, I think it's, uh, it's kind of what I was talking about, the medium in general. Is, it, is, it is a long tracking shot over a number of different landscapes. You couldn't really do that practically if outside of the world of stop motion and i just think it really pulls together everything you know about wes anderson yes and it's just great and again like arguably that scene wouldn't be as effective with a different song yeah like yeah, yeah, it, it's the, the 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 music is great i was actually listening to it um uh i was cooking dinner before we jumped on this to record i was like right what should i listen to because usually it is heavy stuff recently it's been episodes of uh, your podcast um i was like you know what yeah let's just put the isle of dogs soundtrack on so listen to that a bit and then i found a couple someone has curated like uh it is a a lot of songs wes anderson has used but then also songs that kind of fit in with that yeah and it just immediately it's just like a mindset it kind of seems to drop you into yeah i have a i have a playlist i've created yeah, so I've watched every Wes Anderson film. What, what yeah. of it? And it's yeah, like, I love, I love a good playlist. You have to send that to me. And it's kind of like it is that thing of like stuff that is Wes Anderson like needle drops, but then kind of stuff that is Wes Anderson needle drop adjacent. And it's like the kind yeah. of the suggestions that the Spotify algorithm kicks up, and it's like you know what I mean other yeah. other I don't know other kink songs or other faces songs that kind of yeah fit in i mean for vibe. a for a random tangential compliment to a company uh the spotify algorithm is on point 
Yes. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not gonna. I, I I have a lot of issues with them as a company, but that algorithm knows what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They, they they platform some absolute fucking eggs, but they also yeah. they they also have, yeah nailed down that algorithm and. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's Boris Johnson we've done. We've got Secret Cinema out of it. We've got Joe Rogan on the list. Yeah, fuck, fuck all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're getting through it. Yeah, this is uh, Woke Connections, hosted by Petros Pasilis, <laughs> with my guest this week, Ian Harries. Let's talk about, uh, let's take down someone else. Fuck, uh, fuck Nigel Farage. Uh, yeah, so, um, which let's kind of start to wrap things up and yeah let, 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 let's talk about like the kind of the way that this film climaxes where kind of once spots is brought back into the fold of this film we kind of get that flash does it happen just before but we get that flashback at one point i think it's really beautiful the, the first meeting of atari and spots i think that's really like I did. I did. There's, there's some, there's something about it. And I, I, I just pulled a clip, and it might not work, or like. So that's the. It is the hospital bed. Yeah, I, I don't think it yes. works in an audio format so much, just because it is kind of quiet. But like, I think people will get the gist of kind of why this is so affecting. <laughs> I can hear you, Master Atari. I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you. So just the way that, like, and, and, and in that scene as well, you have Spots crying, and it is just this idea that, like, almost like an, an oppressed, like, uh, people kind of finally... Mm having their voice heard in a weird way. Do you know yeah, what I mean, if that yeah. makes sense? Yeah, it, it's... Um, I, I don't know. It, it's finding its purpose, finding its place, realising it's... Uh, yeah, it is a beautiful scene. And... Um, yeah, it... It, it, it kind of hi it hi highlights for me, because there is... This is, a, in essence, a film about a 12-year-old yes, who hijacks a plane and crashes on a garbage dump to find his dog. And at no point did I think that isn't something I would do. <laughs> right? Because it's his dog. Like, of, co of course he's going to go after six months to find his dog, because yeah. that's what you're going to do. And that, that scene you showed there, I think it's a... It is a perfect moment. Like anybody who has a pet will feel something watching that. Yeah, and like but, but just the way it, the way it kind of wraps up as well when there's like they storm the town hall when they're kind of having that like yeah kind of on the spot re-election. Yeah, that like the the nineteen eighty four style um, forum. Yeah, and then like obviously they prove this conspiracy that Tracy Walker has had the whole time that Dr. Wantanabe uh, had this kind of cure all along and ah, uh, like an absolute like magical bit of animation in this film is when 
we get that sushi scene. I absolutely love it. Yes. Kind yeah. Because like, the thing is, like, this isn't, a, this doesn't, like, as much as it is a film for kids, I don't know. I don't think it's a kids' movie, like, even though it's like a PG in the UK. Um, like, it can. Yeah, I, I, I think kids, kids could watch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's I don't I don't think it because most most animated films are secretly for adults, but are for actually for kids. But I think this might be the other way around. So I think it's definitely for an adult audience, but kids could still kind of appreciate it for its dogs on an island messing around. I think what it might do is though is it might take that uh, Studio Ghibli like approach to like we're not going to talk down to kids. Mm. We're gonna like, yeah. really show you what it is like. We're gonna show you like people getting poisoned with sushi. People, some like might need a kidney transplant at some point. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and again, it feels uh, yeah. like it's her uh, even more of a love letter to Japan in that way of like, Wes Anderson knows his kind of onions when it comes to the <laughs> majesty of Studio Ghibli and his kind of higher oh, studio like giving him I, I mean, the, the props. Like, I mean, talk about. Uh being able to present food on film oh. like studio studio nothing makes you hungrier than a studio ghibli film yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's something um i actually I, I don't think there's a food that is as like film friendly or comes across on film as well as sushi yeah i don't well because i don't know if yeah. Talking to Studio Ghibli, I think it's at Howl's Moving Castle. I don't eat meat, but like seeing a seeing that like uh, full English breakfast that, mm. that is made in that film, uh, even I'm like, oh yeah, yeah I'd, I'd I'd have a go on that. Like, do you know what I mean? Or uh, yeah, like, that that would be that would be nice. But I I don't know if it's yeah I I don't know if with sushi it's the um, how like. So I, I didn't eat sushi for a long time because the first time I ate sushi, it was bad. Yes. <laughs> like, it, it did, like, it didn't make me ill. It was just shit. And that then put me off it a while. And then I watched, um, have you watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi? No. So it's a documentary and it's of this. Uh, so it's one of the best sushi restaurants in Tokyo is this five-seater place in, like, Tokyo train station. Um. And it's run by this guy called Jiro, and it's just him. And it's just about the restaurant. And watching that, I was like, I need to give sushi another go. <laughs> like I just because of the because of how exact everything is, and the the sushi scene in Isle of Dogs is perfect for that as well. Like it's just because it's all vibrant colours, it's all pieced together, and it's all very geometric. It's like, yeah, that's. Uh, like, I, I, I don't want a scene that is about poisoning someone to make me hungry, but <laughs> it, it does. With poisonous wasabi. Yeah. Poisonous wasabi. I love that. I, I love that that is kind of the thing that they have on their kind of uh, red button to kind of poison all the dogs on the island as well. And that, like, <laughs> yeah. we I like that. to think there's other condiments. It's like, shall, we, shall we go with poisonous mayonnaise this time? Yeah, well, yeah po- poisonous vinegar. Let's kind of all <laughs> pep, pepper's already used for a spray. Let's have let's have poisonous wasabi. Uh, so yeah, the way that we kind of alluded to it, the way that this film wraps up is with the uh, Tracy Walker and her kind of band of pro dog lovers and kind of uh, coalition storm into that meeting, and then like 
Atari gives this like beautiful speech, which um, I couldn't actually pull, but like it's just it's absolutely great. And he kind of does like another great little little haiku, which is I have it written down right here. Do I? No, I don't. Oh no! It says uh, <laughs> it says in my notes, get clip. I couldn't get a clip. <laughs> um, I can't remember the first two lines, but it ends with like cherry blossom. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will probably be in the quotes for this film, right? But can uh, I find it? Not have too much to edit out. Oh, there is a lot of quotes for this film. It's not even there. It's not even there. There, there is some absolutely. I got it for you. Thank, thanks to Reddit with the question: Does anyone remember the two haikus on Isle of Dogs? Uh, whatever happened to man's best friend, Cherry Blossom Fall? Yes. Ah. I love. I like his address to the people and then that kind of is it during the fight he gets hit by one of the rogue teeth from spots with his yeah which of... we did which we didn't talk about and we won't comment on just because i find that funny uh <laughs> the dogs have military grade shooting teeth um yeah so there's a fight between kobayashi a cat robot dogs the dogs and the protesters um and then Akira either gets hit, sorry, um, Atari either gets hit or it's like the culmination of the fact he's been in like two plane crashes in a week. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if it's just suddenly he realizes, oh, I'm falling apart. Um, and then his uncle slash, uh, where the opposite of a ward, yeah, um, gives him his kidney. Which I think is a proper, as far as apologies go, is a good one. Is a, is a good one, um, <laughs> and then uh, Atari becomes mayor. Yeah, because of a like a loophole in the system, which is like, if the mayor has been seen to die or do wrong during his reign, it goes to his like nearest heir. Yeah, which which feels like implementing like you always hear like. Uh, Oh, did you know it's legal outside of this city at 9 p.m. at night to drag a horse through a thing? Yeah, like, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Of one of those, like, laws that just hasn't been expunged yet. And yeah, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it feels like that. at midday, like, when the sun is in the, in the, in the east. Yeah, like, if you're on the castle wall, yeah, you're yeah, allowed yeah. to... Um, <laughs> yeah, it feels like one of those. Yeah, you Like, it was just... <laughs> You can cover a ma- another man's wife on a Sunday, but only when the yard arm is past the, the, <laughs> the Jujima flick. Yeah, I love, yeah, 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 yeah. All those kind of antiquated laws. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it feels like that. And then um, the, the, the closing um, kind of, I, I guess you'd say montage of the film is amazing because it goes back to, so throughout the film, you've, you've cut back to a lot of these like dogless scenes. So like you said, like the, uh, the noodle bar, um, 
where uh, Bill Murray's um, where Boss, the mascot dog, which is we'll just say Bill Murray dog, um, where he would usually be, and you cut to like family members and the the family who make the dog treats. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the more you go back to them, the more you notice they've all got little photos of their dog on the wall and things like that. And then the final scenes of the films are just kind of going through all of these and the dogs being back. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a, it's just like a little thing of like, yeah, dogs are great, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And that's why. Um, and then uh, it, it, the, the, the final reveal, to be fair, is very good because you don't know if Spots is alive or not. Yep. Um, and they pan down to this shrine and a statue of spots. And then they put um, uh, put food down and then spots appears. And it's a proper like breakfast club fist bump, like yes. fist punch kind of moment of like, yes, he's okay. We're okay. I didn't realize how much I cared about this stop motion dog until the prospect of him being dead was kind of on the table. And I love the fact as well that Atari takes, I assume it's like the runt of the litter. That, yeah. Um, that, yeah, like his, his, uh, that spots his partner has. And like, he's kind of like, I like the. Just, just got him in his coat. Yeah, the legacy. Yeah, and he's always feeding <laughs> yeah. him for a bottle. And all, all, all that stuff's brilliant. And it's like, there's, um, there's a longing yeah. for a better future, right? And I think that's the kind yeah. of like, the leaving note they give you for the film. There's, um, th- there's an amazing article um which i got a lot i'll I'll try and uh send it to you where they listed they ranked all of the dogs in the film yes um and all of them were tied first <laughs> and Amazing. it was like, it was it was a proper like this is written by somebody who understands a man's relationship with dog it was just everyone like one a one b and then number two was robot dog <laughs> <laughs> And it was it was great because I think they had like a rating and every single one was a very good boy. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. As we start to wrap things up, Ian, is there anything that we've missed about this film that you would love to love to highlight or that you feel like we need to talk about? Uh, to to be honest, um, as I've kind of referred to a couple of times, my big takeaway from this film is just dogs are great. I yeah. just, I just, I, I, I very nearly, so we, we have a family dog, uh, who is called Banjo and he is a Westie and he is an absolute bastard. And I think he hates me, but I would like walk over hot coals and broken glass for him. Like, you know, <laughs> the, the normal, the normal relationship between man and dog. Um, he's called Banjo because when he was a puppy, he looked like a little bear. And I just Amazing. went through bears. I liked, I was like, there we go. Banjo from Banjo Kazooie. Um, and I was very close. I was just like, I really was like, just wanted to message my dad and just be like, can you just send me a photo of the dog? Can you just, <laughs> like, can you just, like, does he occasionally, does he, does he ask after me? Yeah. But, well, uh, yeah, that's yeah, it was. You've never had a dog, but like, you've been in close proximity to a, mm. a lot of dogs. Like, every time my brother goes, like, out of town, like, I'll look after your dog. Like little little, I like I I'll have her or like like my old flatmate used to have like a a dog. Any opportunity, I'd be like, yeah, I'll look after her. Don't worry, like I I I'm your guide. Like, and it's uh, yeah. So we have uh, I say we. So any regular listener to our podcast uh, will have heard uh, Graham's dog Bowie snoring in the background. Yes, and. Um, 
he's he's like the unofficial third uh podcast nobody asked for uh co-host and he is the so we i we we just moved into a new place me and my partner but i i we lived at graham's for a couple of months while we were sorting this out and it's the first time since i was just out of uni that i lived with a dog and we were just kind of like it's like i really hope on the last day we're here he's a little prick because if we if if we leave and he's on his best behavior within a week we're gonna have bought a dog (laughs) or rescued a dog or something and um it's definitely on the cards i think Oh, but Bowie is a good I boy just, then. Oh, he is. He he is the he is the stupidest, cleverest dog I know. <laughs> Amazing. I think I've seen. I think I've seen a photo, perhaps. Of, of, oh he's yeah, a, yeah. He's a little Frenchie, right? He's a little. He's a little Frenchie. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Who uh, big, big, big fan of just running around and occasionally masturbating. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. A, 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 a dirty little boy. We love it. Um, dirty so, little boy. So as we like to yeah do every time on this podcast, we like to look through these films and find out were there any Copa connections? Were there elsewhere in the actors or crews um, filmographies? Did they work with another Coppola somewhere? I, I I found a couple of uh, connections when I was looking through, uh, trying to avoid the obvious ones of like Bill Murray was in every Wes Anderson film along yep. with all of these other people. Um so the guy who uh Kenichi K- K- uh, Nomura? Yes. Um vo- who voices Mayor Kobayashi and also has a story by credit was in Lost in Translation. Yes, yeah yeah, yeah. I've got that on my list. Yeah yeah. Um my fa- uh so uh, Angelica Houston uh who is credited as Mute Poodle um was in uh George Lucas written Michael Jackson 3D film short that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola which ran from 1986 at Disneyland Captain EO that's the one yeah. and uh, probably my favorite one which I didn't realize so it's not it is it is connection in the loosest term because um so Edward Norton was talked into doing American History X by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, okay, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll hear you out. Yeah, yeah. So, so apparently, Edward Norton was talking to him and saying, "Like, I want to whatever your next project is, I want to do it." Um, and then I think uh, Francis was saying, "It's weird just saying Francis, but I'll, I'll try as if we're on first name basis." <laughs> I do um, all the time. Yeah, it was basically saying like, "Oh, well, what's on the table now?" And Edward Norton said, oh, American History X, but I'm not sure I want to do it. And he talks through the plot of it. And uh, Francis' response was, you should do that. You should do that immediately. If you do that now, they'll never know what to do with you. They'll never be able to put you in a box. Which I think is is true. But at the same time, Edward Norton being Edward Norton. And I think the power trip of basically being in the editing room or American History X and the yeah. director walking off made him become a bit of like a an egomaniac to some degree of like yeah that he I, needed that with every film I think there was like issues with the Incredible Hulk for that exact same reason yeah it, there was a prevailing and some would say warranted narrative that Edward Norton didn't play well with others yes um and I think 
he now seems to be because if you don't play well with others, you don't play well with Wes Anderson. Yeah, because oh, there's big. Yes, I there's, think there's there's like a simpatico there where it's like I'm working with somebody who knows exactly what they're doing and has thought about yeah. every single like outcome from the get go. Because there's a that I can't remember which Wes Anderson film it was, but possibly Grand Budapest Hotel, where he put them all up in just like a random massive Airbnb like Manor House or something like that. And all of the cast lived together in this big house while they were making it or something like that. It was Moonrise Kingdom they kind of yeah Moonrise Kingdom like chalets and stuff like that. Yes. Like yeah. The the um the makeup tent were basically like it was like the like the Boy Scouts or like the kind of yeah like the big scout camp and stuff like that and yeah and I think that kind of must have brought him down a peg or two. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I think he's out of it, but um, arguably the trajectory would have been very different if he hadn't done American History X, and that is apparently entirely because of Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> well, I will I will lay off a couple of. Weird ones I've got here. Um, all kind of ones you wouldn't think about. So, obviously, uh, did Bob Balaban. I say obviously, people probably won't know this. Bob Balaban <laughs> is in the Nicolas Cage and Samuel Jackson starring Amos and Andrew from 1992. I believe that film came out. Um, can yeah, uh, Kenichi Nomura is also in the Grand Budapest Hotel hell as well as nah. lost in translation um f murray abraham is in all the president's men which was scored by talia shire's then husband david shire in one of his early roles where he's like credited as like top number two he's also <laughs> in the tv series in which jason schwartzman starred in or to death um Oh God! I forgot that was a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bored to death. Yeah, yeah. Soon to be covered at some point on this podcast. I'm telling you guys. Uh, so, talking about bored to death, Frank Wood, who does the voice of the Simo translator, the uh, the kind of yeah, the the device that's throughout. Yeah. Uh, Isle of Dog. That kind of. He's in Bored to Death, and also in the uh, TV show. Mozart in the Jungle, which is co-created by huh. Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman, as well as uh, Paul White, the director of American Pie. Uh, when I was um, when I was in I was in New York uh, a couple of years ago. I say a couple of years ago, six years ago, um, and we were wandering around, and we very nearly disrupted them filming Mozart in the Jungle amazing um they it was a big scene where they had a full orchestra in washington square park and yeah. we were we were so distracted by the orchestra i think we very nearly walked directly in front of uh what they were doing oh wow so yeah gail um, garcia banal would have probably been there right yeah, yeah yeah so we we just kind of hug around but it's uh that's probably the most geographically adjacent to a Coppola project I've been. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, you would have been in like, you would have been breathing the same air maybe as Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola yeah. at that point. Or at least someone who was reading notes from Jason Schwartzman. Yeah, that, um, that is that, that that is amazing. Uh, let me check if there's any other weird ones. Obviously, Harvey Keitel is in National Treasure 1 and 2. Bill Murray is in way too many to mention, but we'll throw out 
He's in Ed Wood, which Stephanie Schwartzman was a production assistant. Oh, oh wow. Uh, and Angelica Stone, uh, Angelica Houston is also in a Francis Ford Coppola directed film called Gardens of Stone as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's it. Uh, what, one of the weird ones. So a supervising editor, Andrew Walsbaum was the editor of the Darjeeling Limited, Moonrise Kingdom, French Dispatch, but was an additional editor on Bewitched, which Jason Schwartzman <laughs> is in, and was an assistant editor on Snake Eyes. Nice. Which obviously stars our boy, Nicholas Grandy Cage. Uh, so let's move on to what I like to call on this podcast, Impossible Questions, Ian. And the first one being, uh, what would man? No, no, these aren't even impossible. Quite. Let me do that again. Let's move on to rating this film. And the way we do that on this podcast is by asking you, what is the perfect wine pairing for Isle of Dogs? Right. So I have cheated. So I have two answers to this question, which will soon become apparent. So the obvious wine pairing for this is, and I'm going to butcher this, it's Ume no Yado Yuzo, which is a Yuzu-infused sake. Lovely. Which is uh, Japanese rice wine. So um, there is a great restaurant in London called Shack For You, and they serve this there, and I could drink bottles. I would, I, it's the kind of drink where it is so nice, you have to have people stop you drinking it. Oh. Like, if it's, in, if it's in front of you, you will just... You will just down it. Um, and the other drink I'm going to have with that is, um, and I'm going to caveat with this is 100% real, is a nice Malbark dog wine. <laughs> so, because obviously I'm watching this with a dog. So we've got to get, uh, so there's, um, there's also a Chardonnay. <laughs> but they're, um, they're basically like, uh, Red fruity and white yeah, like fr- fruity herby drinks designed for dogs that is marketed as dog wine. So Amazing. you have to, you, you, you can't, I can't watch Isle of Dogs and not cater for the dog that's with me. It's, uh, it just doesn't work. That is perfect. And I think your, yeah, your first one really ties into your fact of you mentioning the fact that, um, like watching stop animation kind of, um, uh, time lapse video someone would have mm. to pull you away from it and the fact that yes uh, yeah that wine is something you'd have to be pulled away from as well uh, yeah is, is, i is, couldn't is, recommend it enough is is beautiful so um let me ask you is this film or yeah is this wine top shelf middle shelf or bottom shelf uh so i, I would say it's top shelf um i would say there is it, it, it's not like the the highest top shelf but the guy would have to lean up to get it nice nice he's not getting the stall yeah. out but he's getting on his tip yeah. yeah exactly like you know like d- depending who's working they might have to get the stool out okay like that, that that's the kind of that's the kind of height we're talking but there, there is still a couple of bottles okay. out of reach yeah, out of know, reach of the corner you know it's, it's if you're in a restaurant it's it's not those kind of bottles you look at and your eyes widen where it's like like, yes yeah yes I, I i i have to agree with you on that point so now let's move on to yeah the impossible questions on this podcast the first one being 
which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmography of the rest of the family. Uh, so, so this this question was, it was easy before I found out some films that were tied in, because the problem with this is it's going to get rid of Rocky Four, and that 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 does make me sad a little bit. But it, it's Nicolas Cage. It, it, I, I it thought it was it, going to be. I'm not going to lie yeah, to you. Yeah, it, it can't. It can't not be. Like I would. Um, I would happily, uh, well, and, and now thanks to the wonder that is letterboxed stats, I know he is my most viewed actor. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it has to be Nicolas Cage. And I, I am sorry to um, all of the Jason Schwartzman stuff that isn't going to kind of be there anymore. I know Wes Anderson's going to have a heavy hit off of this. Rocky Four, Rocky Three, Airheads. I, I, I love Rocky, but Rocky Three and Four is where it's at, right? Like that's the. <laughs> that's the fu- those are the fun they're the rewatchable films yes yeah yeah, yeah. Like rock rocky's yeah, yeah. probably the best but i wouldn't necessarily run to watch it again rocky 4 i could watch twice in a week i think i did when i covered it on the podcast yeah i watched the new cut the original cut and both uh, i said it there i'll say it here i enjoy the original cut New one seems a bit too po-faced and a bit too self-serious. It's yeah. a film which is a third montage. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't have to it's not quite good bad movie. And um uh, it, it's really like sitting on the edge of it though, right? It's kind of like so a foot we, in both worlds. Like <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I talked we we did an episode um once which was uh Films we should be embarrassed for liking. Um, and I pitch Rocky Four just with the argument that nobody acknowledges it's shit. Yeah. Like, it's, 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 inc- it's incredible and it's shit. Like, it's, it's both of those things simultaneously, but nobody well, likes to talk about it. It's one of the most ultimate products of its time. Like, it mm. is so mid-80s. It is yeah. like, sickening. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, like everything about it, from the robot to the to the montages to the music, everything is just like <laughs> the, the, the music. Living in America in its entirety, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's gosh, no easy way out. Like all yeah. of it, there's no shortcut. Oh, it's, yeah, it's 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 mad. It's jingoistic. It's flag waving. Oh yeah, it's wild. And obviously, he um the the only problem now, obviously, is because. Because we're going with Nicolas Cage and Rocky Ford doesn't exist, the Cold War's still going on. Ah, oh. Rock, Rocky Rocky never stopped the Cold War. That is true. It's that is uh, true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is very true. But yeah, I yeah I have to. Obviously, you've been on the podcast before talking oh, about yeah. your love of Nicolas Cage and well, given given we first met at a Nicolas Cage marathon, you yeah. knew what the answer to that question was going to yeah, be. Yeah, I think I think I think I do. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a Rocky marathon we met. At. Um, which to be fair i also very nearly went to they did one of those uh recently as well but i uh i I just just couldn't yeah i just don't know if i wanted to end my night on rocky five that 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 is the uh the issue yeah um but yeah or maybe maybe this just means we get rocky without adrian which is just rocky not having the motivation to get back into boxing and it ends 
Yeah, or there's like the thing that obviously you lose the heart of those films as well. Especially <laughs> yeah. the first two. Even three. Like you don't get that amazing scene between Rocky and Adrian on the beach. Or mm. you do, but it's played by somebody who doesn't have the kind of Or or it um it really contextualizes the scenes on the beach with Apollo Creed. Yes. You know, now that that is a Rocky for the twenty first century. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we need. That's what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the most homoerotic film ever, ever made. I think uh, that isn't that isn't out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, so with your favourite Coppola family member being Nicolas Cage, I must ask you, based on this film alone, Isle of Dogs, are they the greatest film family of all time? Uh, based based on this film alone, given we have two of them as well, which is always plus, um, I, I, I would definitely say they're up there. Just because one of the main, I, I think one of the main strengths of this film is the story. Um, and, and also it is, again, a, a bit of a cop-out answer, but because Wes Anderson is such it's it's difficult to watch any film without the context and kind yes, of the wider Wes Anderson world and they're so ingrained into that now as well um I would definitely say they're they're, they're definitely based solely on this they are definitely in discussion as the greatest film family perfect well after after get you back on at some point in the future and really get a definitive answer from you uh, we can figure it out. Stage. We can figure it out. We can figure it out. So, moving on to possibly the most important question of this podcast, which is, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? See, I, I was going to be a dick with this answer, but I thought I would actually be serious. Um, and I think it will be something along the lines of, "That was fun. Let's do it again sometime." What was your dick answer going to be here? I'm not sure. I was just thinking, like, I could just do something really stupidly over the top. Which would, <laughs> knowing Bill Murray would just be, I'm Bill Murray. Yeah. I was in Garfield because I got the wrong Cohen. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. See me in a few years, I'm going to have loads of money from playing an animated cat. Yeah, yeah. And now, and now he's a dog, full circle. Exactly. He's, he's played both sides of the field. He's, 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 he's a man who, who is hard to get a hold of. But we'll do anything for a little bit of moolah, even if it is playing Garfield film. I've never seen. I've, I'm a big fan. Well, of you know Garfield. the you, you know the story behind it, right? Yeah, it's uh, so it's the Cohen by, has a H in it. Yeah, and he, he, he and apparently he thought it was Joel Cohen, but yeah. it was Joel Cohen. Yeah, Joel Cohen, <laughs> not Joel Cohen. But but he did do the sequel, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm here now. I've made my bed. I'm gonna have to lay in it. Maybe I'll get some lasagna yeah. at the end of it. So let's just. It, it can't. It can't be the wrong Cohen twice. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, or he signed a two picture deal, and he's like, oh fuck, I've really fucking shit the bed here. Um, so, Ian, you host the podcast. You do. You, you're out there. Where can people find you? Where can people find the podcast? Where can people download it? Where can Plug away, my friend. Plug away. So you can find the podcast nobody asked for wherever 
you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, let me know and we'll make sure we're added to it. <laughs> um, you can find us on Instagram at the podcast nobody asked for. We're on Twitter at nobody asked for pod with the number four. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, give us a listen. Uh, we're also very receptive to uh, topic ideas. So if anyone has any ideas for a top three list you want us to uh, try and attack, let us know. But yeah, those those are the best places to get us. You can find me. I'm on Twitter at Lord Harry's, which is usually me just occasionally angrily tweeting about my day or about Nicolas Cage. And you know what? I'm fine with that being me as a person. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Anytime, man. Anytime. Again, a massive thank you to Ian Harris for joining me for this podcast. And thank you so much to you guys for listening. And if you're not listening to the podcast that nobody asked for, you are seriously missing out. It's a fantastic premise. It's a, uh, both Ian and Graham are fantastic hosts. And uh, yeah, it's one of those podcasts that really makes me jealous. Not only because it's like... Two friends who have a massive chemistry, so they're not just uh, begging strangers to like them and come chat to them, but they just managed to like nail it out of the gate. And it's just like a professional sounding, really well oiled machine from the get go. So, yeah, if you're not listening to those guys, get on over there and give it a listen right now. Uh, listen to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you disagreed with me and Ian on this podcast, or maybe you thought that we were leftist, snowflake, woke idiots about this film, uh, head on over to at CagedInPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, and let me know what your views are on this film. Did we did we nail it? Did we did we miss anything out? Did we did we did we really miss the mark on this film? Were we right? Were we wrong? Let let, let us know or if you really want to stick the boot in or you want to, you want to step in some love, you want to, you want to really, I don't know, it's Valentine's Day, the day I'm recording this. So yeah, yesterday, right? Yesterday's Valentine's Day. Yeah. If you want to confess your love to me, you can drop me an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Uh, a little confession as well. I didn't realize that this episode is being released on the day that it had its Berlin <laughs> world premiere which for those of you who have listened to the episode will make even more sense because i was the idiot who didn't realize that the berlin film festival was on when it was on and was there so yeah nice little nice little cherry on top of that little cake there so coming up next week on the podcast I will be joined by Daisy Edwards of the fantastic W-rated podcast, which um, this is some fantastic simpatico because this coming Saturday, you'll be able to hear me on that very podcast talking about the number one rated worst film of all time on the IMDb Bottom 100, which is Disaster Movie. So head on over to W-Rated and check that out this coming Saturday. Or if you're listening in the future, head on over to W-Rated and listen to that right 
now. So, yeah, Daisy Edwards will be on next week to talk about the Gia Coppola debut film, Paolo Alto, based on the collection of short stories by one problematic Mr. James Franco. So hopefully, uh, yeah, I reckon it's going to be a spicy one. So be sure to be there for that one. Uh, it's got a fantastic soundtrack as well. A lot of stuff by Devonte Hines, who a lot of you may know from being Blood Orange or before that was Lightspeed Champion or even before that was in the band Test Ice Schools. I'm a big Devonte Hines fan. And I've been listening to that soundtrack on repeat since. So, yeah, join me next week when me and Daisy Edwards talk all about Paolo Alto. So, if you enjoyed this episode or any episode of the podcast and you would like to support it, you can do so. As I said in the intro, and I'm saying it in the outro, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where for as little as like a dollar you can sign up and just be uh, have the good feeling in your heart that you are supporting um somebody who's just trying to do something from the bottom of their heart and yeah uh just 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 get something going do you know what i mean uh or you can give me a little bit more you can give me uh three dollars a month and you get a a fortnightly bonus series called movie brat bros where season by season we're going through the movie brats and looking at their films and how they stack up against francis ford coppola's season one we are currently looking at the films of brian de palma and this thursday you'll be able to hear my conversation with the always fantastic mary wilde where we discussed raising cane the 1992 brian de palma film which is an absolute blast and that episode uh is better than i ever could have imagined me and mary really got into it and it's fantastic so yeah head on over there and again thank you to everyone who already has subscribed to the patreon and uh, if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence like really there's three episodes of movie brat bros there's loads of old caged in bonus questions where i ask my guests what's the worst nicholas cage film uh what's their uh what's like the objectively best performance in a film that he's ever done and what is the like dream director they would love to see nicholas cage work with those those episodes on there and as i said fortnightly you'll get episodes of movie brat bros and any other dumb ideas i come up with i'll stick it up over on patreon However, if you don't want to part with your money, you can always support the podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this right now and leave a brand spanking five-star rating and review. That would be lovely. Always in your review, let me know what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. I would love to hear what you think. If you've got a perfect joke for it or if you've got a sincere answer, i would love to hear it so as always guys i have been petros patsilovas your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copeland Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family. <laughs>